This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show, and this is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. We're Dr. Mattless for one more day. And uh, oh, this week couldn't—the end of this week couldn't have gotten here fast enough because I am fading fast. But luckily, I've got Terry South by my side, and I've got Reed Wolfley right in front of me. He's a sight for sore eyes and sore throats. Anyway, we're gonna have a good show. I'll make it. Uh, and I'm so glad that today is no housework day. Because I don't know if I'm going to be any uh, of any use to my wife today. Probably just go home, collapse. When was the last time you collapsed, Terry? It was a couple months ago. Really? I had a weekend cold and it hit me pretty hard and then I'm back on Monday. <sighs> I'm just aching for the day when I can just collapse. Just go home and fake it. Hmm. You have the voice for it. Ooh. You just sort of play it up. You're like, oh, I feel so achy, and then just crash on the couch. Okay, but the problem is my wife is about eight months pregnant, so I don't know if well, I'm going to get any sympathy there. I mean, pick your battles. Yeah. you, you got to choose the opportune time. Not probably now. Not hmm. a good idea right now. Maybe I can, you know, just offer to do the dishes or something and then collapse and then just, you know, kind of do little pieces of work throughout the day. You got to sell it. That's the hard part. If there's mm. any break in the presentation, she's going to see it. Really? So I got to go all method on this. Yeah. So either you got to go all in or just, you know, tough it out for the weekend. Don't <sighs> She is pregnant and like end of pregnancy pregnant. I don't know what to do. I have plenty of shows I could get caught up on. Sure. Anyway, I'll try to skip the housework because it is no housework day. We're also well, that's just today. Oh, dang it. So you can't carry Maybe, that. So I really do need to take advantage of that today and then get enough rest. But And so maybe by tomorrow I can help out again. But it's also going to be kind of rainy this weekend, so I don't well, know. Like tomorrow and the next day. Oh. Today is supposed to be fairly nice. So I have no excuse not to mow the lawn today. Right. In fact, you Darn might it. want to do that today. Maybe I'm allergic to grass or something. But if you do it, then tomorrow when it's bad, you can you might say, oh, I, mowing the lawn really took it out of me, and you just crash. So we're trying to stretch this throughout you, the whole you, weekend. You've got to set yourself up. And if you – I don't know. It's tough. you gotta, it, it's you got to figure out how, how to best present this to your wife so that she'd find it halfway believable. I'll gauge the, the response for my wife when I get home and just see how she's doing first – but anyway, uh, we'll also be talking movies later on in the program. We're going to be uh, interviewing a, a Ph.D. who uh, talks about wanting to help Chicago's youth and uh, the effect of violence on police. So that'll be an interesting topic coming up here in just a little bit. But first, let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. The United States launched more than 50 Tomahawk cruise missiles against the um 
a military airfield near uh, home Syria on Thursday night. In response to Tuesday's chemical attack that killed dozens of people, including several children, there's no word on any casualties. That's actually changed this morning. There's some uh, military personnel that I believe were killed in the attack in Syria. Uh, it appears to be a one-off strike, not a prolonged campaign of any kind, according to NBC News. Trump was briefed on his military options by Defense Secretary James Mattis during his summit Thursday with Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping in Florida. The U.S. has blamed Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's regime for Tuesday's attack. The Syrian government denies responsibility. Here's President Trump last night. No child of God should ever suffer such horror. Tonight I ordered a targeted military strike on the airfield in Syria from where the chemical attack was launched. It is in this vital national security interest of the United States to prevent and deter the spread and use of deadly chemical weapons. That line of U.S. security interest is probably the, uh, I guess, legal justification for doing this without consulting Congress. Hmm. Some talk of that where you need to go talk with them before we do anything militarily. But he did it uh, besides that. And it falls under the president's purview if it comes into national security. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, Just a reminder, in 2013, Donald Trump tweeted out to President Obama, again, to our very foolish leader, do not attack Syria. If you do, many bad things will happen. And from that fight, the U.S. gets nothing. Aha. Uh-huh. So apparently that changed. Hmm. I don't know. He's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of those uh, kind of going back and going, well, in the similar situation, you didn't – apparently the difference was he saw the video of the children that had died. And there, mm. there has been some other attacks since then. There's children the whole way were being killed, but somehow – this changed his opinion. Maybe it's because he's actually in office and can do something. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting uh, a switch for him on that position. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell triggered the nuclear option on Thursday, changing the rules for the Senate to allow new, for Neil Gorsuch to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. Senate Democrats successfully filibustered the nomination earlier Thursday, garnering 41 votes necessary to vote against cloture for the Ending of debate on the nomination. 55 senators voted in favor of ending debate. 45 against. Current Senate rules state that uh, 60 votes are required to order in order to advance a Supreme Court nomination. The nuclear option changes that, allowing for only 51 votes to be needed. That will uh, continue on indefinitely because no majority uh, party is going to change that because they get whatever they want with ease. You don't have to get anyone from the other party to help you. So once they invoke the nuclear option, there's not like a revote, is there? They just take no. it's fifty five, so that's covered under the fifty one votes required. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's done. All They're right. moving on. The Senate is expected to confirm Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Gorsuch, today at eleven thirty Eastern. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, Texas Congressman Mike Conway will take over the House Intelligence Committee investigation into Russia's meddling in the 2016 presidential election. We're still after, on this? Sure. Representative <laughs> Devin Nunez stepped down yesterday and made a new ethics probe into that. The House Ethics Committee is looking into whether Nunez spilled classified information when he revealed that there was an incidental surveillance of the Trump transition team. Of course, uh, the House went on. Easter break yesterday for two weeks, so nothing will happen for a while. They'll come back and be distracted because there'll be four days to keep the uh, the U.S. from going bankrupt, essentially. 
And Trump right. will have, you know, caused some other thing. Other things will happen. Yeah. So this may, may – I don't know if this the House investigation, when it will get started, but at some point they promise they'll look into it. Finally, police in India are trying to identify a girl believed to be around 10 years old who was found living in the forest with a troop of monkeys. In January, a group of woodcutters in the northern, a northern state of India saw the uh, emaciated girl roaming the forest with monkeys. They tried to approach the girl to offer help, but they were chased off by the monkeys. Police were called. An officer was attacked by the monkeys as he took the girl away. The girl was not wearing any clothes, unable to speak, using her arms and legs to run, and ate food by picking it up off the ground with her mouth. The girl was taken to the hospital where she has spent the last several months receiving treatment, and they are trying to find her family. Oh, my goodness. It's kind of like the Jungle Book. Oh, I hope she finds them. Except not as cute. Yeah. Picking bugs out of yeah. the hair of your primate friends. Well, she had a family. Apparently, they protected her because they attacked the cops. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. I heard that you you know you should watch your face in a monkey attack. They like to go for the face. Oh, okay. That's a good tip. Which is I mean, really that it seems to be the most vulnerable spot because any we've been hearing all these stories about shark alligator attacks, attacks and, and, yeah. and yeah, shark go for the eyes. Right. Oh. Cuz I guess you need to see, you know. Anyway, uh, anything else that we should be concerned about or happy about? There's a US versus Japan giant robot fight going to happen in August. Oh, that sounds intriguing. Yeah, so it says here uh, that uh, the American team of engineers named Megabots challenged their Japanese counterparts. This was back in 2015. Uh, two years later, it looks like the duel might actually be happening with Megabots today announcing a rough date of the event in August. Uh, since the original challenge, the Megabots team has been busy building up their robot, broadcasting their progress on YouTube, even collaborating with fellow internet robotics uh, experts. They say the delay over the dual date was originally supposed to take place uh, like just later, what, 2016, I believe, but because of the venue problems and things. So basically, people in Japan are building a big robot. People in the U.S. build a big robot. And then they're going to fight. Yes. Wait so a minute. So that alone is Wouldn't the news. That, isn't that so frustrating when you work so hard on something right. and within a matter of seconds it's just gone? Like don't you get ticked off when you're building something with your son. Uh-huh. You spend all this time on it. You make it look really good. And then he just decides he's going to knock it over. Yeah. He changes his mind. He's done. And I'm like, oh, I thought we <laughs> – whatever. Or, or – well, I, sometimes it's sometimes it bugs me. He will, will he'll want to play something. We're going to do this, right, Dad? And then his friends show up, and yeah. then he runs out the door. And I'm like, dude, I just cleared this whole time so we could. Have, okay, cool, whatever. Friends ruin everything. I'll go watch something else, or you know, <laughs> find something else to do. But he runs out the door, and it's fine. I mean, let him go play with his friends. But by the way, if you what ever about me and my feelings, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that we ought to talk more about on the Matt Townsend show, Terry and his feelings. Uh, you know, once. These kids come over, your kid is all of a sudden a completely different kid. Oh, yeah. Complete stranger to you all right. of a sudden. Yeah. Because, oh, they see that their friend's eating their dinner. Oh, they're going to eat their dinner. Mm-hmm. Their friend is playing with this toy that they never, ever touch. Now they're suddenly the, – they're, they're so interested in it. Hmm. So we've got U.S. and Japanese robots. Robots. Yeah. Okay. That's something to look forward to in August. Can we top that? Um. <laughs> What, yesterday, YouTube announced they're starting a TV service. Haven't they already started making original movies? I don't know if they've gone that far yet. They've been talking about it. 
Huh. I know they have their a movie rental service that's out there. Yeah. But uh, nothing – I don't believe they've made any uh, YouTube, like, branded movies or, or TV shows quite yet that I've heard. People live in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and two other cities. Uh, they, they, they have access to a 50-plus channel, $35 a month service. Uh, the one major update since the original announcement of February is it will be adding channels from uh, – AMC Network, BBC America, and IFC, which is another channel. Uh, so it makes – it's interesting. Just the idea of they're, they're trying to you know catch these people that when they cut their cord, they go somewhere else. But right? still $35 a month for 50 channels? You don't think that's worth it? Nope. What would be the price that would make you – Well, why don't, at that point, why don't you just get Hulu for, what, eight bucks a month and you can have all those TV shows? I guess the problem is it may not be all the shows you want. Because hmm. not well, I every, definitely don't not want original sh- YouTube content. Well, not every show is everywhere, and this isn't that. This is like regular TV. Interesting. This isn't their. So IFC, yet. BBC. Well, those are a few, but I mean, there's yeah. all kinds of stuff on there. There's uh, let's see here. The rest of the networks in the package are either broadcasters like CBS or owned by broadcasters, which be the there's a group of the ABC, Disney, ESPN type. Shows because they have probably like seven or eight networks their own. So to tell you the truth, I'd probably be more likely to shell out the money to skip the commercials on YouTube than I would be to have a TV package on YouTube. Right, absolutely. <laughs> I because this is, they're just giving you TV, and then there's limits on what you can do and what you can't do, and so it's I don't know. It seems like there's there's this fight to get ahead of people as they make this change on their entertainment, and what they're buying isn't necessarily. I don't know, going to answer the question of do you have all the channels you want? Yeah. Well, you know? I know uh, Yahoo tried to create original content and they, they failed miserably. Well, nobody – they didn't really advertise it and people didn't know it existed. They put uh, – there was a TV show called Community. Yeah. And they bought it and put it on there. My wife and I actually liked the show. So we actually seeked it out to find the show. And it was tough to find. Yeah. And once we found it, we watched a few episodes and we we're like, oh, this isn't as good. And then we stopped watching. Yeah, you know. So I mean, it's it's tough to figure out how to how to get ahead of these people that that are changing. But what they're finding is that you go, you make that decision. You're not going to have a cable subscription. You're cutting the cord. The only people offering any service are the same cable companies that you're trying to get away from, <laughs> right? So they're just putting it, they're presenting it to you in a different form, on, you know, through an app or something on your TV or on some device. But you're paying the same price to the same people, and they're offering bundles. Right. People want to be able to pick and choose what channels. We don't have that. You have to pick a bundle. Or do you like the news? Do you like entertainment? Do you like sports, movies? And you get like a bundle of seven or eight channels. They're going to get you in the end, yeah. no matter what. And so oh. they're just trying to move them, get position themselves in front of those people so that they still have this, basically the same choice. It's like I, the Transformers movies. They're going to get our money no matter what. Well, eventually. Yeah. Like I won't see it in the theater, but I'll either buy, I'll either rent it on a DVD, or you'll see it on your cable service, which you're paying for it anyways, right? Yeah. So some way, somehow, <laughs> you're going to watch that bad movie that it'll hook you because there's a slight level of entertainment as you're watching. Again, we're back to robots fighting each other. Yes. Remember in August, Japan and Tokyo, or Japan and the U.S. Is that a picture of food? Yes, we have more baseball food. Yes. Um, with the baseball season. Beginning, what, Monday, Tuesday, when they were yeah. that happened? Uh, Houston Astros introduced the chicken and waffle cone. 
Oh, I'm all in. So it – I'm trying to see the explanation here. It's on the other page here. It says – so you go to Minute Maid Park. That's where the Houston Astros play. Uh, a waffle cone stuffed with mashed potatoes, fried chicken, and honey mustard. Because, hmm. you know, why not? So you have a, a waffle cone as if it's an ice cream cone. But then you have like the potatoes, the chicken, honey mustard. That might be something – you know, worth trying. I think that's a, that's actually I would a good definitely combination. try that. The Arizona Diamondbacks have a churro dog, approximately oh one thousand one hundred seventeen calories. Oh no! Wrapped in a uh, long john chocolate glazed donut and topped off with frozen custard, caramel, and chocolate sauce. This warm cinnamon churro is for sweet lovers who want the ballpark hot dog experience in dessert form. I've only got so many hands, people. Now, so you, I mean, first off. A thousand calories in one sitting, <laughs> and it's just one item. It's not like you're. Eating I like a how whole you meal. said sitting too, because there's no way you're standing you up or walk walking around. while you're eating. No, there's this. no cardio extent in this at all. But you have a <laughs> chocolate glazed donut, frozen yogurt, caramel, and chocolate sauce. Somehow there's a churro in there too. I'm not sure how it all presents because they don't have a photo of it, but it's probably awesome. Well, be honest. The last time you had a churro, I mean, you you know you were thinking, you know what this is missing? Meat. And a donut. There's no, Fake meat, really. There's no hot dog involved. Oh. They call it a churro dog, but there's no dog. Oh, I see. It's just a donut and the churro and a bunch of like ice cream toppings and it's dessert. Well, now I want to try a churro with a hot dog in it. There you go. Actually, that sounds horrible. Anyway, we're going to take a break so that I can go eat a churro. When we come back, though, we're going to be speaking with Eileen Allen, who uh, is going to be talking about helping Chicago's youth and uh, how that can happen by paying attention to the effect of violence on police. Interesting topic here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Dr. Matt is in uh, St. George, but I'm here and I'm sick, so we'll we'll soldier through. And uh, you know, it's it's no secret. It's it's pretty obvious that law enforcement officers deserve a great deal of respect. These men and women put their lives on the line every day to protect American citizens. But that being said, there may be some work to do to improve our police force. The inner cities of our country are suffering from acts of violent crime. And here with us today to talk about her research on the violent cycle is Dr. Eileen Allen, who is an assistant professor of criminal justice in the School of Public Affairs at Penn State Harrisburg. Uh, Dr. Allen, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'm just curious, uh, just starting off, how did, you, how did you become interested in this topic and, or how did you stumble upon this topic? Uh, this is actually a long-term endeavor uh, between Dr. Joan Antunes and I and our dissertation research that began at the University of Maryland while we were graduate students. And we both became interested in kind of the ecological framework of youth violence and exposure to violence and what that means. And the longitudinal data set that was available and was able to answer some of our research questions came out of Chicago. It's a longitudinal accelerated research design that looks at multiple cohorts of youth in inner cities, in Chicago particularly, 
in their neighborhoods and how those factors um, at multiple levels of the system, whether it's family, community, peers, and even individuals themselves, how that influences their likelihood to engage in violence and actually being exposed to violence in the community. So what are some of the effects of exposure to violence? Well, a lot of research has been conducted and has shown that exposure to violence, even witnessing violence firsthand, hearing about violent activities in the community, whether it's hearing about shootings or robberies, can lead to things such as internalizing disorders, depression, anxiety, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, education uh, deficiencies, and also engaging in violence themselves. Interesting. Just just by hearing about it. That's interesting. Um, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, just exposure to violence in general. It doesn't matter if you're a victim yourself or if you're hearing about others being victimized in your neighborhood or community. Now, what about uh, violence in the media? You know, I I watched a pretty violent movie last night, Hacksaw Ridge. Um, what are, I mean, it, that's a little different because it's it's war, but just violent uh TV shows and movies. What what about that? Sure, and and there is research to be done there. And unfortunately, the data set that is available, these types of longitudinal data sets take a lot of money and a lot of time to collect. So the data that we have available doesn't include the modern-day social media measures that are important uh, to use at this point. And that is an area of research that needs to be conducted in the future to type, to see whether or not that type of exposure to violence, like you said, with movies, video games, seeing uh, social media, the things that we're starting to see um, coming to the forefront in terms of police violence, whether that impacts engagement in violence as well. Now, Dr. Allen, uh, there was recently published the Department of Justice investigation into the Chicago Police Department. What yes. what did that uh, what did that uncover? What did that investigation un- uncover? So that report was spurred by the fatal shooting of 15 year old Laquan McDonald in October of 2014. Um, he was holding a knife, and uh, police came to the scene, and um, Officer Van Dyke was um, the first one on the scene, and actually shot um, Laquan several times, uh, resulting in his, his murder. Um, so this type of violence that has been in our communities, such as Baltimore and uh, Ferguson, Missouri, has kind of spurred several of these investigations by the Department of Justice. And so uh, what the report found was uncovered a pattern of excessive violence, unnecessary force to subdue subjects, shooting at persons who were fleeing, shooting at persons in stopped cars. Interesting. Yeah. So getting back to the to the youth aspect of this, what what are some of the factors that are going to make you be more likely to be exposed to violence? Well, like I said earlier, some of the things that we've been looking at are kind of this ecological framework. Again, you know, we have yourself, your individual, how much you can control, who you associate as your your peers what your family environment is like, and what your community environment is like. So we've been looking at those in multi-level models to determine, well, what's more influential? What is something that we can target to reduce exposure to violence? And some of our research has shown that parenting factors matter. And there's been research done in terms of parental monitoring. Well, we've kind of flushed that out in looking at whether in the home, 
parental controls? Do you supervise children's homework? Do you know who your child's friends are? Do you know where they're going in the afternoons? Compared to outside of the home, do you restrict access to the neighborhood? What type of external youth activities are they engaged in after school? And comparing those. And what we found in terms of in-home uh, supervision, restricting time in the community is, is important. Parental discipline, if it's harsh discipline, that will increase exposure to violence. Restricting time in the community will decrease exposure to violence. These things tend to make sense, but it's actionable items that we can convey to parents to protect their youth against exposure to violence. And other things that are important are also peers. So is your child associating with deviant peers? That will increase exposure to violence. Unstructured socializing, are they just hanging out? Do they have a goal in mind with their social activities? Those things can increase exposure to violence. That, I, that's a that's a great one, especially for our listeners. Anybody who is a parent, you know, to have that structured time instead of just, you know, hanging out, as you said, that is that's a sure. great tip. Um, so obviously, this is not just a problem uh, with the Chicago Police Department. You know, I, I lived in Seattle for a number of years. And there were a number of problems there. Of course, there were also a lot of police killings, too. Uh, what are what are some of the causes or what are possible causes of this violence? Is it is it just uh, cops retaliating because cops are being killed or what are what are some of the possible reasons for this violence? Well, and that's what drew our interest in the piece that appeared in the conversation. That's one of the reasons we wrote that piece is we were curious. Well, our research really focuses on youth violence, youth exposure to violence. And then we see this Chicago report building on the Baltimore incidents, Ferguson incidents, and thinking about, well, we know that there is an impact on youth who are exposed to violence. It's the same thing happening for police. Think about it. Police are in neighborhoods that are violent. They're policing areas that need attention. Are they having that same effect of being exposed to violent areas and in turn engaging in violence? We don't have an answer for that. We just think it's an interesting um, area to pinpoint. Is there a reciprocal relationship between police being exposed to violence and using more violence? Because we're seeing an uptick in violent activity, not only in communities, but by police, as evidenced by these DOJ reports. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, I, I'd like you to, to talk a little bit more about that data. Give us some of the numbers that, you know, the, the killings that are taking place. And, and maybe let's talk about what we can do to get those numbers down. Sure. So in, in the past few years, I'll, I'll start with um, 2013. Homicides in Chicago was, in 2013, it was 414. In 2014, it was 411. 2015, 478. A little bit stable. Uh, you know, more to our liking, but stable. But And then 2016, the number increased to 762. That's about a 60% increase from the 478 in 2015. That's a substantial increase. And what we're thinking and what we're, what we're seeing through these DOJ reports and investigations into police is that perhaps there's what's called the Ferguson effect. Are police not willing to... Um, engage citizens for fear of being videotaped by social media? Are they retreating and letting violence occur because they're afraid of the reprisal? Um, there's some evidence to that, and that needs to be further investigated. But then thinking a step further, how do we reduce that exposure to violence? How do we reduce those 
um, factors that could relate to increased excessive force by police. Yeah. So this is some great research that you've done. I'm curious to to know what you have planned going forward with this research, what you what you hope to look for and uh, discover. Well, in our research on youth, we're continuing to build theoretical models to look at what it means to be within routine activities, what we consider in criminology a standard theory of um, what puts someone at risk for violence or exposure to violence. Are they a suitable target? Do they lack capable guardianship? And that's where I think the guardianship in terms of, you know, the parents, the community, I think that's where we can translate into police research and looking at their exposure to violence. What the reports are saying from the Department of Justice is that there is a lack of leadership, a lack of accountability, that instead of being the parent figure of guardianship or community guardianship over a youth, it's the department who's the guardian over whether or not police are engaged in violence. And we need to develop that further also developing the link between the community and the police. There's a lot of discussion about, well, if if, um, youth were more engaged with police officers, then they might not be as engaged um, to combat with them using violent techniques. But the same could be said for police. Looking at that cultural competency, putting police officers in the position of youth in our inner cities to understand where they're coming from as well. So I think further development there to understand violence on behalf of, of police officers would be important. I love that, you know, because I was just thinking we have the strangest relationship with police officers. You know, yeah. we're, we're out on the road. We're maybe going a little faster than we should. And we see them out on the freeway and they, they kind of seem like sharks to us just waiting to bust us and get us in trouble. And yet when we need them, when somebody breaks into our home or we get into a car accident, then, you know, we expect them to drop everything and help us out. It's just such a strange relationship that we have with them. Sure. And, and, and one of the things we wanted to do with this piece in the conversation, Dr. Antunis and I, is, is that police do need our help. We need to be on the same page. Um, police need to know that. Let's take a quick break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's Dr. Eileen uh, Allen talking about addressing violence in America. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Dr. Eileen Allen, who's been talking to us about uh, addressing violence in, in America. And uh, Dr. Allen, we, we lost you there for a second, but we were kind of in the I middle of, of talking about um, this interesting relationship that we have with police officers. You know, when uh, when we see them out on the road, we, we don't want to have anything to do with them. But when we need them, we, we want them to, to pay attention to us and help us out. And you were talking a little bit about uh, community engagement and how that can help our relationship with police officers. Can you pick up where we left off on that? Sure, absolutely. And I think that's where, you know, the the next step needs to occur is is addressing um, how we can Uh, work with the police in, in conjunction with, you know, we want this reciprocal relationship. We want to have them available when we need them, but we also want to know that they have our back that they're not out to target us either. And I think what the DOJ reports are showing, you know, not only in Chicago but in Baltimore and Ferguson, 
is that there's some sort of lack of leadership. There's lack of accountability. Maybe some uh, training is necessary, some additional cultural competency to address youth in inner cities to, to bridge that gap. There, all, there have been hiring efforts to make the police mimic the neighborhood, you know, because that's important in community policing, that you see someone who's like you on the police force. And those efforts need to be doubled. Yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier that I that I used to live in Seattle, and there were a couple yeah. of opportunities for us to develop a relationship with police officers. We had a uh, we had a couple of meetings regarding neighborhood safety, where a police officer would come and and talk to us and give us tips about uh, what to do and what not to do to to be safe. And the, another example is. Uh, I, I believe they will typically show up for a block party where they, you know, they put. Uh, barriers at either end of the block and you know it's just a good opportunity for neighbors to meet each other and i think police officers go to that too do you have any other examples like that things that we can do to become more educated to improve this relationship that we have with our police officers sure definitely and i believe those types of events are important and sometimes you'll see those on social media or you know here's here's a great example of a community police officer getting involved and and you know what we balance out with the things that we don't want to hear about in terms of our police on on the street. But those efforts need to be more frequent, not as uh, commonplace, as uh, uncommon as, as they seem to be now. And I think over time, what that will end up doing is if we demonstrate to the community, to the citizens in inner cities, that the police are there for us, they are there to help us, that then that will trickle down to families, to educate their children that the police really are there to help because a lot of the conversations that are going on now is that you don't want to be engaged with the police. The police are there to hurt you. And those types of conversations need to change because we are seeing that combativeness. Um, but it's, it's cultural. At, at the moment, we need to, to make those changes. And until the police can make that, um, that bridge and the community can see that they are there for us, uh, then I think it might continue. Dr. Allen, we've we've got about a minute left, and, and just in closing, I you know we've been talking about how we can improve our relationship with police officers. Getting back to um, ex- our exposure to violence, what is something that we can do today to to ensure that we are not so exposed to violence ourselves, and then also uh, to make sure that those that we love and care about are not as exposed to violence too. Well, I think, you know, in the broad community sense, we need to engage in what we call collective efficacy. We need to have informal social controls and be hold our neighbors accountable, hold the citizens accountable for things, step up, and when we see something wrong, um, discuss it and, and make sure that it doesn't continue to go down the path of, of violence. Um, more immediate measures to keep youth safe are to know where your children are, to to have supervision. And increasingly, that's difficult with two-parent working households. So it's, it's challenging to make sure that you know where your children are all the time and who they're associating with. But those are real factors that can impact their exposure to violence in the long term. Dr. Allen, thank you so much for those tips. Those are wonderful tips, and I appreciate them, especially as a parent of, of two children myself. Her name is Eileen Allen, and uh, she is an assistant professor of criminal justice in the School of Public Affairs at Penn State Harrisburg. She earned her Ph.D. in criminology and criminal justice from the University of Maryland College Park, and her research interests include violence, criminological theory, neighborhood effects, and corrections. 
And uh, we really appreciate you, Dr. Allen, and uh, good luck in your uh, future research. Well, that is such an interesting topic. Terry, you and I were talking about during the break how, you know, when we see those police officers out on the freeway, we don't want to have anything to do with them. But when some somebody robs from us or we get in an accident where we actually need them, you know, that's when we call on them for help. So they, it's it's kind of a tough relationship because right. no matter when we're seeing them, something bad has happened. So we're never really happy when we see them. No. And and to her, what what the article that she wrote that you'll find on our Twitter account, um, she's talking about, I mean, everyone, you know, the, the kids in Chicago living in a very violent place are acting out in a violent way. The police go into that environment. So and I guess the logic is that the violence doesn't affect them at all. When in fact, what they're finding is that they trying to act out because they're in a violent situation. So they're like on, they're they're very aware of what's going on, and they may act out in violence because of the area they're in, and they act out, and it it might in their mind seem um, adequate because of the level of violence in the area. So right. they act out with a, a, a you know reciprocal level of violence themselves. Yeah, and you get this sort of circle that and the kids see it then they do it the cops see the kids do it so they react and it just goes back and forth and you you get this this bigger problem that i don't know how you fix it other than stop and then you know the easy the easy word to stop the violence but you don't just stop it yeah someone's always going to continue and the other side's going to react well i think and it goes back to to what she was saying about community engagement and improving that relationship so um You've got a few stories that yep. we've just been itching to tell, and there's one about a, a washing dishes that I want to make sure that we get to. Right, um, and then I can't remember the other one. There's another one. We'll do the okay. we'll do the dishwashing one. Yes, I think it's okay. the most groundbreaking information we can share at this moment. Okay, at the I mean of the at stu- the moment the okay, stuff yeah. I found. Yeah, I mean I find stuff every day. But so when you wash your dishes, do you rinse before you use the dishwasher, or do you put the, the dishes in your dishwasher dirty? Uh, I mostly rinse because they're especially silverware. If you don't get peanut butter off of the spoons or in every little speck, they'll come out just as dirty. So this is the director of the food of the cleaning lab at Good Housekeeping Institute, right? So they test products, they give it the Good Housekeeping yes. seal of approval. Those people, they say you should always scrape off food scraps before you wash plates, bowls, and utensils. But that's the only that's uh, the only step your dishwasher can't handle. Your dishes need to be dirty for the dishwasher detergent to do its job. The makers of, say, Cascade detergent uh, discourages customers from pre-washing or rinsing dishes because it actually inhibits the cleaner from working. Enzymes in Cascade detergents are designed to attach themselves to food particles. Without food, the enzymes have nothing to latch onto. In other words, your precious detergent might just rinse away before it has the time to do anything to clean the dishes. Interesting. So scrape, but don't rinse. Yeah. So if they're still like... I don't know, if you use ketchup and there's ketchup on the plate, you might want to leave that. But doesn't that happen to you where you pull out a spoon and it still has, like, crusty peanut butter on it? All the time. Yeah. That might be because you overloaded. And so you're not Uh all the – you had too many things blocking that spoon, and so the spoon never got clean. I'm kind of an overloader myself. uh, Two says you won't get your dishes any cleaner if you rinse or hand wash them before you put them in the machine. Again, back to the enzymes. Right, they're actually not cleaning anything. They're just washing away before they have a chance to activate when they attach to the food. And you're wasting water. 
and detergent. I always, I always tell myself that I'm going to have this bowl of water in the sink and I'm going to not let the water run. I'm just going to use that bowl full of water to scrape everything off. And I never do. It says your dishwashers have advanced sprayer technology and sensors that detect how dirty your dishes are. You know, mm. So they're kind of looking for these things. All right. I'll give it a try. Pre-rinsing at the sink and washing dishes by hand, for that matter, seriously wastes water and energy because you're using hot water. Your, your water heater is heating up the water. You're just you're my spending wrists, money. My wrists get really tired. My right. lower back. Yeah. You waste 6,000 gallons of water a year insisting on pre-rinsing, Consumer Reports says. Wow. That could save a lot of money. Okay. I'll give it a try. Uh, it's needless time uh, – Needless time to do. It calls it a time suck, which I have a lot in my life. There's things that just eat up time for no reason. It says, we know your mom taught you to rinse and old habits die hard, but pre-rinsing is a task you can feel good about getting rid of. You ditch that hand-washing habit using an Energy Star-rated dishwasher instead by scrubbing by hand can save you 230 hours, almost 10 days in your year. Whoa. So there's time-saving. There's money-saving. You're actually uh, – the product you're buying to, to wash your dishes in the dishwasher is actually being used correctly if you leave food on the plate. So just a thought. I th- my problem is stuff gets in there and it sits there for maybe a day and a half and then it smells. Yeah. Because it's not quite full yet. You want to have a, f- a full dishwasher when you run a, a cycle. It's kind of like uh, with the time-saving aspect. It's kind of like daylight savings time. I always tell myself if I find extra time like that, I'll use it towards sleep. I never do it. I end up just staying up later watching a Netflix show or something. Right. <laughs> you, you you waste it relaxing and having, you know, not not thinking about the, the work that you just saved. Oh, well. Are you an overloader? At times. See, I love, love loading the dishwasher. Well, I cannot stand unloading the dishwasher. I do it every day so often. You're going to have a baby, so there will be bottles and things of that nature. So, yeah, there's a lot of dishes being washed and cleaned and – dishwashing cycles and you just do it after a while you just sort of go on cruise control and knock it out so you can get on with the rest of your your life instead of just washing dishes again because in an hour you'll have more dishes to wash that's true especially with kids at home which is ironic because they don't eat interesting who's doing all the eating we'll take a quick break when we come back mckenna bouse is in the house here on the matt townsend show Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We've got McKenna, uh, McKenna, I almost said McKenna House. McKenna Bouse is in the house, and she's she's kind of sweating over here. She's a little nervous about bringing up this topic of uh, cannibalism. She was worried she might take it too far, but don't worry. That's that's my job to take it too far. You know, I'm sitting here looking at Reed behind the board right now, and I'm I'm just thinking, man, if if this if there's like a lockdown to this building and we're stuck in here. Would Reed be the first to see? I just took it too far. <laughs> well, but uh, you know he is wearing that mesquite deodorant this morning, so he's it's smelling pretty good in here. <laughs> okay, now that we've taken it too far, let's let's uh, let's talk about this. Topic. Yeah, I, I'm here to talk you down from the ledge. Okay, good. Um, there's been some studies that have they've been doing looking into what they call nutritional cannibalism, specifically. The act of eating other people for the sake of I need food, I need calories as opposed to in a ritual setting um, as 
you know, their thinking is a little more common. Um, okay. But it turns out eating reed, not your best move nutritionally. You're just – it's not worth <sighs> the effort for the number of calories you're going to get out of it. He, maybe he eats too many Doritos or something. Something – well, I mean that would probably make him worth more calories than <laughs> – Right now, it's showing. Yeah, that, but those are not the good calories. No, but yeah. right, um, right now they're looking at during the Paleolithic period. It really just wasn't worth people's time to go and eat another human because, I guess, as humans, we're only worth about one hundred and twenty-five thousand calories, and they could get so much more from just you know go get an easier to kill you know bison. Or yeah. if you can get a woolly mammoth, that'll last you like 60 weeks or something. So yeah. that's a very good choice. Wow. Or 60 days. Sorry, not weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite the woolly mammoth right there. Yeah. Okay. So don't eat reed is what we're learning so far. Yeah. Um, but You're safe, reed. Don't worry. Some, and, and this is where I, I just don't want to gross people out too much, but I think it's interesting. Um. Obviously, you're going to get the most calories in a person. They went and broke down exactly how much each of you, like each part of you was worth. You know, what, what's the, the good cut of meat if you're looking for something a little leaner? <laughs> it's, it's so disturbing. <laughs> but uh, turns out you're going to get the most bang for your buck in terms of calories. If you start with fat, move on to bones, then you want a good thigh follows it up and the spleen is sort of at the the bottom of the totem pole so like start with the love handles is that what you're saying yeah that's that's a good area to start good because that's where i want my fat gone maybe we want that there sacrifice that you know like go liposuction and sort of donate it to i don't know (laughs) (laughs) all right well, do they actually want you to eat the fat? No. Oh, okay. Don't don't eat people. Disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, but, I'm glad you said it because I – yeah, that's an important disclaimer to make. But this is just sort of um, – they were going through and saying here is exactly how much you get from people. And they use the same method that they use when they're trying to determine how much calories is in a cut of beef. And they, it's, they used um, some cadavers and went through and it's – causing a lot of stir within the community not within like the scientific community not so much because people are like "Ooh, why are you trying to figure out how to do this with humans but they're saying you know you're not this isn't precise enough of a method you need to have a larger sample size and i just don't know if i really want that to happen yeah interesting okay so don't eat people yes but if you're going to start with the fattiest parts of the body. Yep. And then move on to the bones. So mm. there you go. See, but bones help with uh, teeth strength and uh, I don't know if they help with the sheen of the teeth. I don't even know don't if your teeth can does. be described as having a sheen to them. I think that's more of a coat on dogs. Anyway, wow. Um, I, I It would be wrong of me to say that I'm hungry now. But uh, – Oh, that was so gross. I, uh, but I, I will say that when I go home, I, I think I'm going to have some chicken with some reed and rice. I mean, beans and rice. And, uh, yeah, then I'll have some reed and butter, bread and bread and butter with, uh, some reed raisin ice rum raisin ice cream for dessert. I think I'll be sticking with vegetables for a while after this. All right. <laughs> Me too. Oh, doesn't that make you hungry? 
McKenna Bouse, you've done it again. Thanks again for your insights. And uh, again, don't eat humans. But if you have to, go with the fattest part of the body. Hopefully you're never in that scenario where you have to have these uh, moral dilemmas. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be continuing the discussion and having fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's still in St. George, but he will return. You know, I gave him an opportunity yesterday on the show. We were speaking with uh, Spencer... And uh, Jason at BYU Sports Nation, and we were talking about bad sports wagers because there was a guy that uh, lost a bet and ended up being duct taped to a yield sign. And uh, when somebody tried to help him down, he was almost tasered by the police. Anyway, I said on the show, I said, I will shave my head if Matt Townsend comes in tomorrow. And I'm sure somebody out there listening, maybe even Spencer and Jason, uh, contacted him and told him that. But he still chose not to come back here. Apparently his vacation was more important than seeing me without any hair. Just wait a few years and then you can see that every day. Ah, It's Friday. Finally, we've made it. We're going to be covering some really fun topics here today, including... Adult coloring books. Terry, have you ever have you gotten into this adult coloring book uh, craziness? No. No. Read? Every time. Um <laughs> I I have not, but um my wife enjoys it and several family members actually find it therapeutic. Interesting, because that's exactly what our next guest is going to be talking about. Coloring books for adults and whether or not they're therapeutic. There's several uh, like tablet apps you can get yeah, for Android or Apple products. And with the pencils they're coming out with with the tablets now, you can actually do the, the drawing and the coloring and filling in. And it, again, it's just sort of checking out, letting your mind focus on something that isn't necessarily your everyday life but you're trying to complete this task and yeah that's the therapy of it also see i would i would think maybe it would be more useful for somebody that is approaching old age i guess as right. we all are but somebody that is in the stages of you know they're starting to lose their their memory or their you right. know it, it seems like and that, in that would, case, help it out. would be therapy that's true so I guess right. that would be therapeutic. So it's therapeutic for uh, you know younger people who just are trying to find some way to de- de-stress from the day and not think about the day and you just focus on this little project until it's done. I think that's kind of a step in the right direction though, getting people off of their phones, off of their TVs and into books, mm. even if they're coloring books. I have not done it. Um, but uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe if I were to go back and color again, I'd find that I forgot how to stay within the lines. Anyway, so we'll be covering that fun topic. It's actually a um, 
an interview that uh, Matt Townsend conducted a while back. We'll be replaying that interview. We'll also be talking movies and, of course, uh, sports with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. And, of course, you definitely want to make sure to take advantage of today because today is No Housework Day. Terry, are there any housework chores that uh, you are looking forward to not doing? No, I'll probably do them. So you won't be celebrating No, no Housework Day? No. Wow. There's no upside to Mr. That. Grinch over here. There's no upside. If you don't or do Mr. it, Scrooge. you have to do it tomorrow. So just get it done. So you'll celebrate no housework tomorrow then? No, I'll probably have more housework tomorrow. It never ends. It just piles up if you don't do it. Never ends. All right. Well, Terry, tell us, why don't you, what's going on around the rest of the country? The U.S. warned the Russians before, oh, the U.S. warned the Russians before launching at least 59 Domok missiles aimed at Syria, NBC reported, using, uh, citing U.S. officials. The strike, which hit an airfield near Homs, struck aircraft and infrastructure, including the runway. There is no word on casualties. Actually, this morning there's been uh, two or three. It's kind of kind of sketchy coming out of the, the Syrian media trying to assess what's going on, but there has been a few casualties as the it is a military base. There were people there. There is no word uh, on uh, buildings specifically that were targeted. It's all kind of generic, like hangars and airplanes and stuff, but they'll put up some satellites and we'll probably get a, a better report later today. No, Russians, no Russian assets were targeted, according to the report. Russia is suspending cooperation on communication channels with the U.S. set up to avoid mid-air incidents between Russia and U.S. pilots in the skies over Syria. The move is in response to U.S. This US strikes on that Syrian airfield. And uh, as for international response to the strike, several U.S. allies said Friday that they support the U.S. air raid on Syria, including leaders of Israel, France, Italy, the U.K., Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell invoked the nuclear option in the upper chamber Thursday, moving to kill the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees. His motion prevailed 52 to 48, voting along party lines. The change to Senate rules was prompted by Democrats' successful efforts to filibuster the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. A vote to confirm Gorsuch is expected today at about 11.30 Eastern. Former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney is reportedly considering throwing his hat into the ring for Senator Orrin Hatch's seat, should the Longtime senator decide to retire after his current term. The 83-year-old incumbent may not seek re-election next year, but uh, Romney has allegedly made it clear that he won't pursue a seat without uh, Senator Hatch's blessing. This all according to a report in the Atlantic. And finally, a woman taking a selfie survived a 60-foot fall off California's highest bridge in what cops say is a distressing trend. The unidentified woman was walking on the Forest Hill Bridge uh, steel girders with a group of six friends on Tuesday when she tried to snap a shot and tumbled backwards to the trail below. She was airlifted to a Sacramento area hospital and is expected to survive. A friend told a local TV station the woman was knocked unconscious, her arm was deeply gashed, and she will need surgery on bones that were fractured. This young lady is very lucky to be alive. The county sheriff's department wrote on Facebook, they note that the catwalk underneath the bridge, uh, underneath the bridge's pedestrian walkway is closed to the public for the protection of our residents and our community, but somehow people get down there to take these crazy photos, and uh, she fell off. That is crazy. I'm I'm glad that she's going to survive. It's definitely one of those things where it's like, maybe I'm supposed to still be on this earth. Maybe. Like the way I felt when I almost killed myself uh, with electricity. Right. But that's like a daily occurrence, right? Um, yeah. 
So I'm really supposed to be here. You tried to start a fire the other days. You were, you know, trying to get putting your putting together my lawnmower. Yeah. Yep. Doing some spring cleaning. So. Yeah. You know, it might just be a daily occurrence and not really something like like this is probably something that's uh, not something that commonly happens to this woman where she falls off seventy foot bridges. But uh, for you, that's just my thing. You know, some people like adult coloring books. Mm. I go for uh, coming up with creative ways to uh, uh, just balance on the verge of death. There you go. Wow. Anyway, um, oh, goodness. So just be smart, people. Enjoy the moment. Right. What happened to enjoying the moment? Are you ever going to go look at those pictures ever again? Someone will. Hmm. Not me. Hmm. Wow. Well... I want to share a couple of stories here about crazy things that have happened on the road. Terry, what – have you ever had road rage? Um, not that I've acted upon. Okay. I've so been, it's just I, I've built been, up I've in been your... angry, but I okay. haven't done anything about it. So no. you let it boil instead of boiling over. Oh, yeah. Sure. If that's that's the way we'll leave it, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, a, a road rage incident in Albuquerque escalated when the suspect pulled out a gun and a donut – Hmm. Juan Ray Candelaria, 47, told police he was driving when another car started to tailgate him. According to the criminal complaint, Candelaria got mad and slammed on his brakes. Then both drivers got out and started arguing. Police say Candelaria then threw a donut at the other car. That'll show him. Then pulled out a gun and fired around at the car. Candelaria told police he later dumped the gun inside a trash can. He's charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and other charges and, I believe, misuse of a perfectly good donut. Now, they don't clarify what the deadly weapon was. Was it the gun or the donut? Well, a donut could – threw both of them, right? A donut could kill you from cholesterol. Could be. That could be the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. Ugh. That might be a, not a bad way to go, though. Eating a donut? That's horrible. We're – Kind of morbid today. A little bit. Donuts that kill you and don't eat reed. Right. Uh, One more. um, A stretch of Germany's Autobahn has been partially shut down after a truck carrying 15 tons of vegetables tipped over, spilling its contents across the highway. Police said the truck went off the A-14 Autobahn and hit a highway bank Sunday morning, causing the trailer to tip over and strew its load of tomatoes, cucumbers, and peppers across the road. The truck's 34-year-old driver and its 36-year-old passenger were not hurt in the accident. Now, that kind of sounds good. Cucumbers, tomatoes. Highway salad. Mmm. Just don't put any shrimp in it. Could be. That's, that's had adverse effects on you. But yeah, you'll hear about these every once in a while where the uh, truck hauling some product, some food, strewn across the highway, and you're like, oh, that's such a waste of food. It's never like an armored truck – Sometimes or, it is. Those I are fun. Didn't we do a story about – I think there was a bacon truck that yep. tipped over. Oh, I want to be at that accident. And it caught fire and then everyone oh. had to sit there through the, the smell of bacon that was unedible because it was mixed with diesel oil. But it was oh. – you know, apparently it smelled, it smelled great. That's too bad because that would be the greatest excuse for being late to work. I'm sorry. I was late to work. I, this – truck tipped over and this bacon ignited and we all just sat there and ate it there you go but you can't so So what else is going on escalators are becoming an issue for some 
apparently. Uh, in Washington, D.C., you'll, uh, there's, there's long been talked about, you'll, you'll know when tourist season is around. Because if you work there and you're trying to get through the, the metro system, the, the tourists just stand like two abroad on the, the escalator and you can't get by. But the public that work there and live there, they know that you stand to the right, right. and you walk to the left. Yes, and that way, so people, if they're in a hurry, they can get by you. You don't have people yelling at you as you're blocking the escalator. Just be courteous. Stand to the right. You go to the airport, sometimes they'll have a recorded message asking you to stand to the right on the motorized walkways they'll have at times so people can move on by if they're in a hurry. It is interesting how you see people on the escalator and you would you would think that it's their first time even seeing an escalator. Like, oh, what is this? Right. And they're just all over the place. Yeah. Oh. And, and so the... Apparently, by standing by by standing to the side and other people walking, you're actually damaging the escalator. That's what's come out in the last. Interesting. Few so it so says, stick to the left and walk up the stairs, figuring you can save precious seconds and get a bit of exercise. But the experts are united in this. You're doing it wrong, seizing the advantage at the expense and safety of other commuters. Boarding an escalator two by two and standing side by side is the better option. It might sound counterintuitive, but researchers say it's more efficient if nobody walks on the escalator at all. The question of standing versus walking flared up recently in Washington, D.C. after the general manager of the metro system, uh, Paul Windefeld, said that the practice of walking on the left and standing on the right as outlined in the metro's rules and manners could damage the escalator. So they actually have rules in a rule book. For commuters, this is what we suggest to stand to the left or stand to the right and everyone walk to the left. And he's saying that's completely wrong. The escalator company Otis, apparently they are a big name in escalators, uh, said that that was incorrect. An NBC station reported that Mr. Wetterfield clarified that standing two abreast would be safer and reduce the chance of falls if everyone did it. Now, originally, Otis' statements to the law, his uh, position had been that passengers should not walk on escalators as a matter of safety. Codes and standards vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but our recommendation is for escalator passengers to step on, hold onto the rail, and stay alert. Isn't that a common fear for a lot of people that your shirt or your toes or something is going to get caught at the bottom of the escalator right. and you're going to be ripped to shreds yeah Yeah. or you tell your kid that the you know the stairs fill up the basement that kind of thing uh last year the (laughs) london underground promoted an experiment at its holborn station one of london's busiest with more than 56 million passengers and uh what escalators that are 77 feet tall so they go for quite a while uh, quite a while there the underground had concluded that stations with escalators taller than 61 feet, much of the left side went unused, causing blockages and lines at the bottom. The underground uh, uh, campaigned to fill the available space on the escalator with people rather than leaving the left side of each step largely empty, except for those who chose to hike up. They found that time, uh, they found that walking up the escalator took 26 seconds compared with standing, which took 40. However, the time in system, or how long it took to stand in line to reach the escalator, then ride it, dropped sharply when everyone stood, according to the Side by side. So if you get a single line, you're not utilizing the full escalator and you, you make up a, a, a backup at the bottom of the escalator as people are trying to get on. Uh-huh. Whereas if you go two by two, there's no line up at the bottom. Everyone's more efficient. It takes 40 seconds to get up. No problem. So you heard it here first on the Matt Townsend Show. Walk two by two on escalators and don't wear Crocs too. Yeah, Wasn't that Crocs. a thing? says when 40% of people walk, the average time for standards is 138 seconds and – and 46 seconds for walkers. 
So Standers was 130, 138 seconds. Walkers took 46 seconds to walk up the escalator. Mm-hmm. When everyone stood, the average time fell to 59 seconds. For walkers, that meant losing 13 seconds, but for standers, it was a 79-second improvement because there was no line at the bottom of the escalator to get on. You can afford 13 seconds. Right. Wow. There's also – originally the story came out saying that there was some stress on the actual system itself where you had people on one side standing, the other side moving, causing the escalator kind of to shift a little bit. It would cause it more maintenance over time. Whereas if everyone just stood there, there'd be no excess movement and it would uh, – longer times between maintenance and maybe downtime if you have to shut it down to go fix it. You see, you learn something new on this show every day. I just learned something the other day about the suicide lanes, you know, the the yellow lanes in the middle of the road that people use to safely turn into a shopping center, let's say. Yeah. Well, so you're supposed to enter that when you're turning into a parking lot. But when you're going out of a parking lot trying to get back on the road, apparently – I I always thought you could use that same suicide lane or to – Or the, the middle lane of the road. Yeah. Right. To safely get back into the road from the parking lot. But apparently that's not the case. You're supposed to turn from the parking lot right into one of the lanes of traffic and not yep. utilize that going out. Right. Not supposed to sit in the middle of traffic. Is that ridiculous that I didn't know that? I thought it was sort of common sense. Mm. But I'm not the only person that does that, you no, have to admit. which leads to your, your original question, do I experience road rage? And yes, I do. So you get mad at people like me? Just people that are doing things to cause problems by getting in the way of other people. See, but I didn't know. And you never know how many people out there just don't know that uh, maybe you're supposed to turn on your signal when you change lanes. Possibly. I do that. Well, good. Yes. And I don't go in the HOV lane when it's just me. Lots of people do. <laughs> yeah. I would avoid that. <sighs> this is the Matt Townsend Show. It's a show that you're going to hear things that you never knew before or that you'll be reminded of. And you'll hear things that I didn't know that I probably should have known in order to get a license. So if you see me out there on the road, just proceed with caution. Just keep a wide berth, long distance away from me. Anyway, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be tackling that topic of the controversial topic of adult coloring books and whether or not they're therapeutic. Matt Townsend will be conducting that interview when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little Pocahontas for you. Colors of the wind. When was the last time you colored something in, like, a coloring book? By yourself or not, you know, not even with your kids. It might surprise you to hear that the prominent psychiatrist uh, like Carl Jung, even many, many years ago, early uh, uh, on, prescribed coloring to his patients to help them calm their minds in the early 1900s. The trend is now picking up a lot of speed uh, again since its beginning 
um, in 2011 uh, with now major uh, book publishers publishing coloring books for adults. Joining us today is Mary Grace Berberian. She's a certified art therapist, and she's here to talk about the therapeutic value of uh, of art and adult coloring book trend. She joins us now live from New York City. Mary Grace Berberian, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, studying up on this. It's hard to find somebody that is an expert on art therapy that can educate us on this. Is this is this real? Uh, is there is there a therapeutic value to a coloring book? I think there's therapeutic value in all art-making opportunities. So I would say that, yes, there is therapeutic value in coloring. I think that it's restorative. I think it's calming. I think it can provide a sense of mastery for people who engage in this art-making form, for sure. Hmm. I mean, it's – and I guess if it helps you, it helps you. Well, (laughs) I'm a therapist, so I believe that any opportunity that you have for self-care is a good one. Um, so if you're coloring and you are getting some stress reduction from it and it's helping you to distract from the other stresses that might be surrounding you, then for sure it's doing your body good. I think um, what has been challenging is that this is not therapy. It's therapeutic hmm. and has therapeutic potential, but this is not art therapy. Yeah, and what what is the difference for those that are keeping score? <laughs> <laughs> so art therapists are like graduate level trained practitioners, and we rely on the same inherent qualities of the art-making process, things that we can help people to find a sense of restoration and balance from engaging in the process. But when you're engaging in art-making times, and this is something you probably all can relate to, is that you might have associations that come from the art-making process, and then you create a product, an image that might be relevant to you or might trigger past experiences or perhaps underlying conflicts that you might be experiencing. Hmm. So that's where the practitioner comes into play because that practitioner can illuminate the process, can help um, explore the issue, and most importantly, offer intervention. Coloring books, of course, can do all that. Yeah, I guess, I mean, they hand you the image and your benefit is you get to focus and center and color and lose yourself. Yeah, we actually don't really rely on coloring books in art therapy sessions. We usually encourage more spontaneous expression. But for some clients who might be a little bit more timid and looking for it, who might be kind of intimidated by the process, coloring a preformed image might be a great way to begin. Like mandalas, which are circular forms, have been around in many different civilizations. um, And that provides a great place to kind of focus and begin. So we can use them as starters, but usually the work is a little bit more in-depth than just coloring a preformed image. And there's research. I mean, there's research about the therapeutic or I guess kind of the meditative benefits of those mandalas, right? Uh, for sure. I mean, I think that, you know, we let's face it, we all like to have a significant level of control in our lives, right? <laughs> we yeah. have these to-do lists. We have other things that we like to feel that we are you know, masters of our own domain. So if you're coloring a preformed image, you're focusing, you can color within the lines, you have control over what you're doing, and at the end, you have a pretty aesthetically pleasing image, that's going to make you feel pretty good, mm-hmm. you know, for, even in that moment. So there's therapeutic potential in that, and we also know that focusing on a very meditative, you know, activity does 
it has been proven to reduce blood pressure, and it does bring a sense of calmness to an individual. So the research supports all those therapeutic potentialities of it. I mean, really, you you make a great point. Like therapy, you think of the boy who was abused or who lost his parents, and he's going to see a therapist, and they ask him to draw pictures of his family, and it gives some insight into his subconscious. And I mean, it's it's powerful. It, I, and then then you can do the a real therapeutic type of intervention. Really, I guess what we're saying with the coloring books, it's more like going to yoga. Exactly. It's self-care. It truly is self-care. It's stress management. And I'm not trying to dissuade the listeners who are looking for opportunities where they can kind of just de-stress. Absolutely. And I promote that we all de-stress a little bit more in our lives. But um, for those people who might have some more serious stress in their lives or might be looking to reconcile some issues, that's when you would take it to the next level and seek the help of a therapist. And you, Mary Grace, you, you are an art therapist. I am an art therapist in New York, yes. And you've got – but you've got a ton of degrees. Uh, <laughs> and so it's not – yeah, this isn't just feeling good because you're painting something beautiful, which is therapeutic. But um, mm-hmm. you can actually go in and probably you know customize, as I guess most art therapists could, customize a real intervention through art. Absolutely. And each, each intervention, um, each therapeutic intervention is really considering the developmental needs of the client. It's considering the past trauma. Um, it's also considering where the client is really willing to begin from because we always start from where the client is most ready to begin from. And some of them want to just use pencils on paper and that's fine. Others may want to you know, smear paint on the canvas. And so we always respond to whatever the client needs and then also tailor our interventions according to those needs and what might other, you know, other kind of stressors or challenges that might be emerging for that client. Hmm. I mean, you, it seems like the, the catharsis, you know, grabbing a bunch of stuff to smear on a white canvas could, be, <laughs> could feel really, really good. I guess talk, just talk about how people can release all of these these pains and tensions. I guess some can just do it verbally and some can do it visually, I guess. Right. So, you know, clients do have, there's something that's very soothing about being able to process. I work with clients who are deeply traumatized. So sometimes the words are just, they're not accessible or they're not even, you know, they're, their traumas have been stored more physiologically, more as body trauma, and so they have to express it in a nonverbal way because that's the way to access those memories and those sensations. So processing them visually on a page without words is actually proven to be really helpful for clients who are deeply traumatized. Hmm. Um, so you know, even post 9-11 in the you know, 9-11 recovery work that I have done and others from, in forms of disasters, Clients can really relate images because when you think about the tough things that you've been through, most of us remember the visual. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. So the images come before the words do. When I ask people to talk about something or kind of remember something that has been difficult for them, most of them will remember the scenes, the smells, the sounds of the experience, not so much the words because we're not there yet. Right. So that's how the images prove to be helpful. So really, and I guess too, in many ways, it's it's a way to get it out of you, and it also, I guess, as it as you change the meaning of it through the therapeutic process of talking to a counselor about what they're doing, then it can take new meaning. Then, then I guess the power is you always have the image if you want to keep it. 
Right, so the image does become what we call a running record. It does become a document of this was my experience and this is what I have been through. But for many people who have been traumatized, um, having someone else validate that experience to say, yes, this is something that was really um, tragic that you've gone through. Here it is. Let's talk about it. Let's look at it. And also the, the real work of trauma recovery is not to push it away or right. just close it up. It's really about integrating it into the self. So you, now it becomes a part of you. It's out there and it just becomes part of your life story. It, it seems in a way, um, and this maybe, I'm sure art therapy would work for everyone, but I've noticed like with my boys, um, if I go try to talk to them about an issue they're having and I kind of take it head on, it mm-hmm. doesn't seem to go as well as if I just have them shoot free throws with me. <laughs> while we're talking. And it's almost Absolutely. like they don't know we're doing therapy. Absolutely. So, you know, engaging, especially in like more play or recreation-based activities works especially for young children because that's the language of their world. Most children are engaged socially through play. And so play and art making are natural forms of expression, especially for children. So keep up your good work with your boys because that's a great way to kind of connect to them. And then I guess, I mean, eventually they'll want to talk <laughs> like adults, <laughs> but maybe not, right? You never know. They're kids. I mean, they're actually getting older, but we're still shooting hoops. Um, well, that's great. It's, it's a great ritual. It really is. And um, so when we talk about the books, the these uh, coloring books, they really are um, – they're therapeutic but not therapy. Right. So they're, they're tapping into this kind of age-old therapeutic potential that as humans we have participated in since – early civilization, you know, like we've drawn on caves and we've done sand paintings and we've made pottery. And basically, each time we create, we're trying to have a better sense of who we are in the world. Think about like cave paintings or maps. There are ways to kind of navigate the external world. So the coloring books are a way for us to offer control. Um, They actually even have apps for your phone that can, you know, so you can color on the go. Mm. I don't think... I think there's something actually very sacred, though, about creating art in the like um, safe holding of someone else, of the therapist. But if you are home and you're feeling like you've had a tough day, you know, I would much rather see you, you know, color yeah. than do something else that might be a little bit more maladaptive or destructive to yourself. So, well, or even just turning on a blue screen and exactly. and start looking at your phone and being stimulated by your phone, maybe turning right. off some of those senses and allowing yourself to, well, what is it? What is it about coloring that is so cathartic? What, what is the, what is it about the process of actually just coloring something? Even if it's just those uh, mandalas, what is it mm-hmm. that, that makes us so calm? It's a repetitive motion of coloring. You know, it's very predictable. And once again, we are creatures of like, predictability and comfort. So in, a, in many senses, we like predictability. So if you're coloring in a form, let's say a shape on a coloring page, you're using repetitive motion, and that's meditative. Meditative like you know, knitting or perhaps even running is. It's the same motion repeated, and that's actually really soothing. Hmm. But then the end of the result, you have something that you've created that you yourself have created with your hands, and you're like, wow, this is really beautiful. And so I think we are constantly looking for that validation, you know, especially, you know, for younger people who are constantly, you know, seeking this kind of validation from others. So you created something. 
some, and, and that can oftentimes feel a little bit safer than saying, let me sketch on a white piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Like so a note that think, might get thrown away. I mean, and it's this is tangible. Is there something about humans, Mary Grace, that makes us want to be creators? Oh, I think it's just a, it's an absolute human need yeah. um, to be creative. And some of us, you know, it's called upon us um, in some of us more so than others, like some of us take form in gardening or cooking or, but there is a creative potential, I believe, as an art therapist in all of us. And sometimes it's been squashed early on because, you know, we get these messages early on that you're not going to make a livelihood as an artist or you might, you know, there's a lot right. of stigma against creativity, especially as, you know, children emerge as, as young adults. So I think that that's always there, and we really should cultivate that. And I think that's probably why we're seeing a reemergence of this call for creativity. Hmm. Well, and the fact that it's making a lot of money for people. <laughs> right now. Well, the publishers, for sure. That's right. Publishers are gaining, <laughs> gaining by this yeah. trend. And those graphic artists that can make uh, you know a bunch of mandalas and circles. And hey, hang hang with us a bit, Mary Grace. We're going to take a break and come back. Continue this discussion about um, art uh, art therapy. And sure. wow, it might be a powerful way for all of us to um, to to get healthier. And and it, it maybe. If you have a, a therapeutic issue, if you have something you're trying to overcome and you've tried other forms of therapy, maybe um, art therapy might be one that could help, um, help open you up a little bit more. We'll take a break when we come back, continue the discussion about uh, coloring bo- books for adults and really the, the great value of maybe just the chance to just relax and meditate. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. everybody to the Matt Townsend show little Jack Johnson for you oh he's got it he's got it going hey joining us uh, from New York City Mary Grace Barbarian she is an art therapist and is teaching us um, she's actually coming from the clinical uh, she's a clinical assistant professor of art therapy at NYU Steinart um, Steinhart She's the program coordinator for the um, graduate art therapy program there. And she's teaching us, you know, you hear about these uh, adult coloring books. They're great. Not necessarily art therapy or not necessarily art therapy, but they can be therapeutic. Mary Grace Barbarian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. This uh, I mean, I, I guess if. If we're calling it a mental uh, kind of yoga, it's a chance to sit, take a take a picture, predict. It's very predictable, like you said. You know, I'm probably most of us probably aren't shocked opening our coloring books, and um, especially once we bought it and we know what's in it. But then the repetitive motion is the benefit of the coloring book. It's like knitting, doing something over and over. But then you have something tangible at the end. What are the other benefits? Um, of this type of of this type of process, just using a coloring book. I think the coloring book um, process also relates to mindfulness, which is more of a cognitive behavioral technique where we really take in the here and now and 
uh, we are able to reflect on what we're feeling and also um, sensing in any given moment and avoid all the kind of I should be, ought to be, what you know, all the kind of stresses that we usually pervade us in our daily existence. So if you can just stop and tune that all out. Sometimes I tell people to turn down the volume in their head of all the thinking that goes on and just sit and create. Um, the coloring book also offers that opportunity for an opportunity for mindfulness to really take in the sights, sounds, and sense of your surrounding and really focus on your deep breathing, um, having your feet on the floor. And so in that way, I also feel like it can you know, provide some relief. Is it, um, it seems like it, it could be a problem potentially for someone that's a perfectionist, or maybe it's not. Um, you know what, I'm actually going to share, we, we have a number of incarceration facilities here in New York, and from what I know from supervising our student interns who have been working in those programs, some of the inmates who have been working in, who, do, who actually do our therapy in the prison system actually prefer a preformed image hmm. rather than creating their own spontaneously. And the question would be like, wow, when you have this opportunity for liberated expression, being imprisoned, wouldn't you prefer to just create? And the answer, as it seems, is that because they are being told what to do all day long, you know, by the correction officers and by the structure of the prison system, it's actually kind of scary, I believe, to be able to create spontaneously because then you're leaving yourself vulnerable for the expression that might be emerging. So what I have found for those um, inmates is that actually using a coloring book can actually, or using coloring forms in the therapeutic treatment can be really soothing for them. Now, once the image is created, then they'll sit with their, you know, sit next to their art therapist and they'll talk about them because most of these are group situations. But the image that they chose to pick from the pile of images that were available hmm. or how they chose about coloring the images are also very relevant to where they are and, you know, how they're choosing to create. Is there a way uh, that we could maybe um, facilitate, I guess, not be a therapist, but is there a way that I could enhance my wife? So I bought her one. Her mother, my mother-in-law just passed away, uh, mm. in fact, yesterday. And, um, oh, I'm sorry. And she, thank you. And she's had Alzheimer's. And so my wife's been going through torture, um, along with living with me and a bunch of kids, um, but is there and so we bought I bought her this book because I just thought oh I think she'd really be good at that she was a school teacher that I when we were first married was always coloring and um, I wonder is there anything I can do to facilitate it to help uh, to help it even be more therapeutic or more valuable um, of a kind of a release for her as an art therapist I'm going to tell you that probably your wife you know, could benefit from more than just the coloring. Yeah, book, right. Like, like, should I sit there and talk to her, or would that be antithetical to the? Um, you know what? I would maybe give her some space if you wanted to. You know, as a mom, as as you're describing her day to be really busy, maybe giving her some space where she can just silently be with herself and grieve the you know the the loss of her parent, who I imagine was pretty significant in her world. Um, giving her opportunities maybe at some point in the day where she can do that. But she probably would benefit from either speaking to someone um, about this significant loss. That would probably be helpful. But I understand how busy mom's lives are, being one myself. So, 
even if she was able to maybe look through a collection of images when she's ready of, you know, her mom and her and maybe creating a scrapbook as some sort of memorial for her mom, yeah. it probably hold a much greater punch in terms of therapeutic treatment than the coloring pages would be. Well, in fact, she's made a blog. And oh, for two, three years, pictures, stories about her mom. Yeah, it's and that's exactly what she's she's done. It's kind of natural then, isn't it, Mary Grace? It's almost like sometimes we kind of naturally know what we need to do to heal. We do. And even, you know, as you're referencing your wife and, and the significant loss that she's experienced, you know, holding on to the pictures, I think, speaks to the need that we have to retain the images. So when we lose a loved one, we usually carry around their picture, right? Or we have their pictures right. in the places that are safest to us because we want to remember them. We want to hold on to them. And the image itself becomes a memorial or a tribute to our connection to that person. It's not that necessarily we need to have that picture. It's what the picture represents for us as a, what we call a transitional object or as a moment of, of the relationship that we had shared. So that's actually very common. It's also very normative. It's, it's what we need to do as people. It's interesting, too. Um, as uh, she, my wife's been going through these photos, she's found one photo that she titled many, uh, many years ago. They were on a walk, and her mom was walking up this trail, and it was, you know, heading up the mountain, and it just looked like, I think she titled it Going Home. But now it's oh. become this symbolic picture, and it's it's exactly what she's doing. She's taking an image and kind of anchoring, this is this is mom going home. And it's, Beautiful. And so... I mean, it's it's so natural, isn't it? As humans, we kind of will naturally go there, and maybe I guess some something we just need to do is trust ourselves that it's work, like that we're doing the right thing. Like, go with it instead of Absolutely. constantly questioning ourselves. I often tell my clients to just trust their hands and to try to, as I said, turn the volume off in their heads mm. because our hands really do know how to solve things much quicker and much deeper oftentimes than our minds do. So we should just trust our hands more and trust that kind of inner voice. I, I totally support that idea. That's powerful. And you've even done this. So you, it sounds like you're doing it in, with with prisoners to help healing in the prison system as well as um, 9-11 victims and just citizens of probably New York City that all suffered through that. And you, and you also have done it with veterans. Well, so I supervise lots of our graduate interns. I haven't worked directly with our um, prisoners or with our vets per se, but I've supervised our clinicians working in those settings, and it is incredibly powerful work. Um, I think the potential of, of art therapy to reach audiences of all developmental needs and all psychological abilities is, is very well documented. So I fully attest to the power of art therapy working with clients for sure. What would you suggest as we wrap this up? Um, what's what's the one thing that all of us could do um, to maybe process some of our, our feelings, uh, I guess, more in an artistic way? Or where should we begin if we're thinking, you know, art therapy might be for us? Okay, so if you just to kind of process or, as I say, digest the day, if you will, um, you know, when you have some quiet space at home, <clears throat> just Create, you know, doodle, create images, and just don't think so much. Just allow your hands to move freely across the page and create. 
And then if you feel that there's um, some material there that you're maybe feeling conflicted about or needing some more support on, you know, the American Art Therapy Association has a therapist locator, so no matter where you are, you can type in your information and find a credentialed art therapist via the American Art Therapy Association's website. Hmm. So for all the listeners who are looking for an art therapist, you can easily find one close to you via that website. That's powerful. And it sounds honestly like, does it have to be, intuitive in a way so do you have to be leaning toward art anyway or can a really good art therapist find find the vein to get into it find the 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 method to do it i'm not sure i understand your question as an art therapist you mean well well so if i'm not artistic in nature um if i still go see an art therapist the art therapist will help me find some artistic method to to access my my mind Absolutely, and for some clients that might even be looking at a series of images for collage and putting together an image from pre-made images that you feel like mm. is representing you know, what you have, in an image that you might be struggling with in your mind or a relationship that you might be struggling with. So for sure, we will find the right media and the right avenue for anyone who comes to see us because by coming to see an art therapist, you are you know, in, innately understanding that there is therapeutic potential to art making. Mm. Beautiful. Well, Mary Grace Berberian, we appreciate you and your great work there at NYU. Oh, thank you so much. Best thank you. Luck to you all. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank you. And thank you for being on the show. Um, folks, you know, it might just be a coloring book, but there are meditative benefits, right? There are, it does get you focused, it does make you more mindful. And then there's a deeper cut if, uh, if you really, if, if you're suffering and, and you've, you feel like you need, a little more help, make sure you go look up the American Art Therapy Association and uh, find somebody in your area, your neck of the woods, that can help you um, access your head, your heart through art. Powerful stuff, folks. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up uh, the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You know, it seems like everyone looks forward to spring. Usually we are happy when this time of year comes around. It's been spring for a few weeks now, but one of our producers, Leanna Tan, is going to tell us what she loves and hates about spring. Every year I look forward to spring. It's like the light at the end of a long, dark, wintry tunnel. It's filled with hope, happiness, and thoughts of flowers and bunny rabbits. But as much as I'd like to say that spring is my favorite season, in all honesty, I have a love-hate relationship with it. Well, I mean, I like spring, but sometimes it feels like it doesn't love me back. Just when I think I'm enjoying spring, it throws something unpleasant at me. So today, I'm going off on a tangent about five of the reasons I have a love-hate relationship with spring. Number one, first and foremost, I'm sick and tired of spring's deceptive weather. I look out my window to see blue skies and green grass and then leave my house only to find that I can still see my breath. And at least here in Utah, even when it does get toasty warm and everyone breaks out their shorts, the next day it's snowing. Spring just plays with my emotions. Number two, blossoming flowers. I love flowers. And it's one of my favorite things to see them budding and blossoming on trees and around the neighborhood. They're so pretty. But yet... 
so stinky. Oh, gross. Yeah, flowers can be deceptive too. We have them all around campus. You walk across campus gazing at the gorgeous view of colorful branches. But as soon as you get close enough, suddenly you're covering your nose and scrambling for fresh air. Number three, the roads. One thing I love about spring is that the roads aren't covered in snow anymore, which means less slipping on black ice, less shoveling, and supposedly less traffic congestion, right? Wrong. Unfortunately, spring is also the time to start up every construction project a city could possibly dream up, apparently. Ever since the snow started lining up, I've had to go through about three detours every day just to get home from work. It seems inescapable. Wherever I go, there seem to be orange cones and yellow tape haunting my every pathway. Number four, more daylight. This is great because I love the sun. I feel safer, happier, and generally warmer when the sun is out. Plus, it means I can get a lot more things done because I don't have the time limit of darkness restricting me. But also, it seems like there's so much more time to do things when really I have the same amount of time whether those late hours are darkness or daylight. So I end up losing track of time often, procrastinating, and staying up later than I should. And I wouldn't say I'm the best person at functioning on little sleep. And number five, spring break. Sure, seems so nice getting away from responsibilities, traveling, spending time with friends, escaping the woes of life, getting a tan, eating junk food, living life. Unfortunately, where I'm from though, spring break is one day. That's right, not a week, not even a weekend. One day. And for me this year, spring break lasted one hour. So it's more like a taunting gesture of what I want so badly, but can't have rather than an actual reward. (sighs) So spring, stop playing with my emotions. I feel like I just want to love you, but as soon as I do, it's like you do something to offend me or push me away. Can't you just let me enjoy the good smelling blossoms and decide on one temperature and stick with it? (sighs) It gets exhausting. Well, everyone... I hope you can enjoy the good parts of spring, and as for the bad parts, just brace yourself to the end, I guess. At least it's only 44 days until summer's here. Happy spring, everyone. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Friday morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Matt Townsend, who is still in St. George. Yeah, not even the uh, the idea of me shaving my head was uh, enticing enough for him to come back. We made a little wager yesterday, and he didn't show up, so I don't have to shave my head. That's the good news. There's no bad news, but that is good news. Uh, The other good news is that we're going to be talking movies later on here with Rod Gustafson. Uh, I also recently took part in a uh, pop culture trivia contest, and so we're going to find out the results of that and uh, Rod today is going to be talking about the new Smurfs movie, which uh, – are you going to go see that, Terry, with your son? No. No. But this one's animated. So, Actually, was, so was the last the one. The last one was animation and live action. Hmm. But this one's strictly 
animation. Oh, great. But there's still Gargamel. Oh, nice. And uh, they're still uh, sleepy and happy and uh, Dopey. surly and Wait, yeah. and you start getting into dwarfs. And it's yeah, kind of weird. So, they're all about the same. Um, the movie is generally for kids, and it's not uh, great, but we'll find out more. And uh, my kid's not interested as of yet, so I don't have to suffer okay. through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll probably skip that one, too. The other one he's going to be reviewing is a movie called Going in Style. Do you know anything about that one? It's a buddy movie mm-hmm. and three older guys trying to fulfill their bucket lists before they – kick the bucket kind of a geriatric heist yeah so it's a buddy movie they're gonna run around and do some things so (laughs) it could be interesting i don't know yeah um well we'll see what he thinks of those i don't know that they're that either one is getting great scores on rotten this isn't really the time of year where the great movies come out it's usually the time of movie or time of year where the movie houses put out the the you know the production the the what do they call the uh 21st Century Fox, what are they called? Movie houses? Production Production studios? studios, Whatever. They put out movies that can help them bridge the gap between the first of the year and then when you get into the summer when you have your blockbusters. At the very least, they could, you know, give us extra popcorn coupons or something to entice us to, you know, this isn't an Academy Award winner, but hey, here's some free popcorn that you can eat while you watch it. Right. Or maybe lower that – oh, that would be great. Wouldn't that be great if movie ticket prices were kind of – they kind of fluctuated like stocks where depending on the point of the year, they're going to be lower. You want like Uber-style surge pricing on your movie ticket. Sure. Why not? When the movie's popular, you need to pay 20 bucks a ticket. When it's not so good, yeah, five bucks. Yeah. It would never go as high as 20 though, especially not in Utah. Some places it would. That's what I'm saying. Right now, some places are already like to $15 for just a normal ticket. Have you been to a movie theater in Utah on a Tuesday where the tickets are $5? You cannot get – you have to buy tickets like a week in advance. Right. Anything that is discounted or free here in Utah County and Salt Lake County, forget about it, especially Utah County. Hmm. Yeah. The uh, the Marriott Hotel down downtown Provo was recently giving away surplus chairs and pieces of furniture hmm. and bed sheets and pillow sheets. My wife really wanted to go, and I thought, you know, it's free and it's Utah County. I don't know about this. Sure enough, we get there. People are parked in the red zone with their big trailers and their trucks. They're parked up on the sidewalk. And there's this gigantic line. We probably waited five minutes in the line that didn't move, and then we just took off. Huh. Anything that's free, is you're going to have an experience like that. I never felt like it was that way anywhere else, though, like California, Seattle. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, I guess it's just better to just pay money for something and enjoy the experience. Yep. All right, moving on. Terry is going to fill us in on what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? The U.S. military struck an airfield in central Syria Thursday night in what the Trump administration described as a retaliatory uh, strike for the Syrian government's use of chemical weapons earlier this week. In Washington, congressional reaction was mixed. Florida Senator, Senator Marco Rubio praised the strike as a tactical action that furthers the objective. I think this is an important, decisive step that was taken, he tells CNN. Arizona Senator John McCain and South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham also commented 
or commended Trump for his use of military force against Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's forces. But Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, a Republican, raised concerns about the strike's legality. While we're all, we all condemn the atrocities in Syria, the United States was not attacked. The president needs congressional authorization for military action as required by the Constitution. Our prior intervention in this region have, not, have done nothing to make us safer, and Syria will be no different. So there's some pushback there, and there's some uh, Democrats and Republicans now that have made their voices heard that they should have had congressional approval before this attack. That's up for debate if you want to fight that out. Twitter revealed that the U.S. government had demanded it revealed the information of a user behind an anti-Trump account. The government reportedly demanded Twitter reveal the, the person personal information of the Twitter user behind the alt underscore USCIS account that said the USCIS is an immigration service Mm -hmm. and uh, so alt USC so alt government account is what that basically means there's uh, several of these accounts have popped up over the recent months the rights of uh, free speech afforded Twitter's users and Twitter itself under the first amendment of the constitution include a right to disseminate such anonymous or pseudo anonymous political speech the lawsuit argues as BuzzFeed news reported on Thursday filed in federal court on in California the lawsuit seeks a court order stopping the US Customs and Border Patrol from using Uh, summons authority to demand Twitter to turn over personal identification information related to the account. Alternative accounts started popping up right after Trump's inauguration when the National Park Service retweeted an image that showed the much larger crowd at President Obama's first inauguration compared to Trump's. Trump was reportedly angry about the tweet, and the Park Service apologized. This led to users who claimed to be either current or former federal employees to launch accounts like Alt-USCIS and Alt-Labor or Alt-National Parks or Alt-Defense Department or just mm. all across the government. These alternative Twitter accounts showed up, and then they started criticizing Trump and everything he was doing. So these people aren't threatening the life of Donald Trump. No, he's just annoyed. Oh, but the, the the problem is, is they purport to be current employees or former employees. Uh-huh. If they're current employees, there could be a problem. Yeah, because they're using sort of their association to the office, and then they're they're in the government working for the administration and criticizing. And there's an issue there, but they're not using the official Twitter account. They're putting this alt yeah. handle in there. And so there's, I don't know, I can see where that could be a problem. It's funny if you want to go read them. Well, he loves him a but, good lawsuit. Yeah. So we'll see where this goes. But Trump's policies and actions with uh, the, so they're, the, the accounts are often critical of Trump on policies and actions and this alt uh, USCIS condemning uh, Trump's stance on immigration. Mm-hmm. Quite often. So the original problem was the National Park Service used the official account to kind of hit back. And that was the that's when all of a sudden all Twitter, all Twitter, all social media from any government institution stopped for like a week. So, so National National Parks was they released the picture of the actual crowd size. The, no, the picture of Trump's versus Obama's crowd at the inauguration, is, which originally made the president angry, which caused that first Sean Spicer uh, press conference where he came in for three minutes, yelled at the media and left. Is that, I guess so. I guess that's technically a park, right? 
You know, that, that whole ground, the the, uh, the National Mall is uh, controlled by the National Park Service. Okay, because I was wondering why the National Parks yeah. – okay, They're the ones that are uh, – that facilitate that area. You'll yeah. see guys walking around the Smoky the Bear hats and everything. It's great. <laughs> uh, the U.S. economy added just 98,000 non-farm jobs in March, failing uh, – falling significantly short of the 185,000 new jobs economists polled by MarketWatch had predicted. Despite the weak gains, the unemployment rate fell to 4.5% from 47 hitting the lowest level in near, nearly a decade. The Labor Department's Friday report also cut the estimate of February's job gains from 2000, uh, 235,000 down to 219,000, and January's gain from lower. So in other words, they put out a number, and then, then the following months that number gets cut. Mm-hmm. Right? They overestimated, okay, here's the better estimate of the number. So they always go back and fix. So they'll they put out the number, everyone's happy on that day, and then a week later, oh, it was actually lower. But you don't really hear about that. We're always just happy the day it happens. And it's this ongoing fight of what's the accurate labor statistic. But Trump, Trump didn't do that with the inauguration numbers, though. No, right? absolutely not. <laughs> but these the, the hiring exceeded expectations in those months, bolstering the theory that President Trump's promises to cut taxes and reduce regulations on businesses would give the economy a temporary bump. Apparently, that has happened. Okay. So some positive numbers there. That happens everywhere, too. You know, like in the movies where they have to they have to project what a movie's going to make. Right. And then when the final numbers come out, they're, you know, slightly above or below that. So, and finally, I have a, a couple food options for you. <gasps> Burger King is uh, putting out a Fruit Loops shake. Oh, so vanilla soft serve with crushed Fruit Loops cereal in the shake. What do you think? Well, this is as unsettling as the cannibal topic that we covered earlier. The frozen concoction will also include a sweet sauce because it's not quite sugary enough to have ice cream plus breakfast cereal in the same cup you must add more sugar wow interesting i would you try that no me neither reed's shaking his head here too this goes back to the april fool's day announcement that burger king had they were coming out with whopper toothpaste oh which sounded just horrible see we we thought it was a joke when uh, the colonel came out with some kfc sunscreen but that apparently is real they made that yeah Great commercials, too. It was good. It was good. And also, uh, let's see here. I'm trying to find this guy's name. A guy named Carter Wilkerson put out on, twi- on Twitter. He goes, yo, Wendy's, how many retweets for a full, a full year of free chicken nuggets? <laughs> Did he get a response? The response was they want him to uh, figure out how to set a world record for retweets. Hmm. They told him it would take 18 million retweets to get to a year's supply of the best chicken nuggets in America. That's a lot of retweets. The most retweets ever were uh, Ellen DeGeneres' right. uh, famous Oscar selfie. That one only garnered 3.2 million as uh, they, they went back and looked at. But uh, Wilkerson was not discouraged. He tweeted a call to action, and now he's patiently waiting. He's w- within, uh, what, he has 331 Million? No, there's 331 million active users of Twitter. Okay. It would take 5% of the entire user group of Twitter, one retweet, and this guy could get free nuggets. I'm guessing if Ellen DeGeneres million. can't do it, this guy is not going to be able to get free chicken nuggets. As of this posting, he's up to 508,000 retweets. He only needs 17 million more. <laughs> so it could take a while. And inter- interest usually wanes uh, after a few days. Right. So – 
They're saying that although even if he were able to fire off a retweet every second, that would take 18 million seconds, which equals 208 days, nearly seven months of endless retweeting for him to get his chicken nuggets. Does he have? Is there some sort of a deadline? Uh, it does not say. Even if there was, that would probably take the rest of his life. Right. So, I guess good luck. But maybe this is something that he wants to, uh, maybe it won't be in his lifetime, but maybe he can pass it on to the next generation of uh, chicken nugget lovers. And I, I don't know if all that effort and work is worth chicken nuggets for life, but or, or for a year. He's just talking about a year's worth of chicken nuggets. Just go spend a dollar and get four of them every once in a while. Right. might be quicker. Less painful, less less trying to self-promote because you know he's going to have to revisit that all the time to keep it interesting. So some people waste their time uh, rinsing their dishes and some people waste their time trying to get free chicken nuggets. Anyway, fun stuff. Now I want chicken nuggets. Wendy's. I feel like we never say anything bad about when- Wendy's. That's because they ne- have never let me down before. This episode brought to you not by Wendy's, but by Flendy's, in case we're going to get sued. Check out Flendy's today for lunch, where they have some schmoshties and uh, chicken luggets. All right, that was lame, I know. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Rod Gustafson from the Parent Previews uh, website as well. He's got a podcast, too. Hopefully he'll tell us more about that so we can... Get more insights into the movies and shows that we should be showing our kids and the ones that maybe we should stay away from. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's time to class up the joint a little bit. That, of course, is the theme song to uh, Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, who is here today to tell us about two new releases that uh, maybe you should go see. We'll hear what he finds out or hear what he says about them. Rod, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks, Jeff. So I'm looking at these movies that you're going to review, and one of them I can say with certainty I'm definitely not Mm -hmm. going to see. The oh, other one, I think I could guess. Yeah, the other one looks a little more intriguing. Anytime uh, senior citizens are, you know, trying to pull off some kind of a heist, you've got my <laughs> attention. Yes. Isn't it interesting how, uh, as, as of course, at parent previews, we analyze movies very differently than how most people look at it. But right. Isn't it intriguing how when we have three old guys committing a crime— that we'll sit back and, and somewhat laugh at it and think that that's funny. And one of the discussion questions I suggested for parents who see Going in Style, that's the movie we're talking about, and your kids are, it's very unlikely your kids are going to want to go see this movie right. anyhow, but imagine this was these were three teenagers and they just lost their job at Flendy's and <laughs> they now need to go rob a bank. You know, I think we'd look at it very differently, wouldn't we? Oh, absolutely, yeah. But uh, and it's interesting too, especially with with uh, people from the older generation. That in a lot of these movies, as audience members, we find ourselves rooting for these people to do these illegal things that we hopefully would never do ourselves. Yes, yes. And so what the screenwriters do is they build in 
a tremendous amount of justification to build empathy for our protagonists. And we see this not only in movies like this one that I mentioned was aimed at older people, but you will often see films aimed at younger audiences as well, where we've got some guy who's doing illegal things, but you know, he came from a bad family or he's lost his job or his girlfriend's left him. And, and we, we load the deck, so to speak, or load the dice so that no matter how we roll it, it's, it's going to come out that we're still going to feel sorry for this guy. It's a smart move, too, because I've sat through movies before where you could care less what happens to the to the yes. main character because they just do despicable things. And my if I ever make a uh, the film writing course for dummies, of which I am one, but I've watched enough <laughs> movies now, I'm starting to see the formula. If you don't have empathy for your protagonist, it's very, very difficult to sell a movie. It doesn't matter what genre it is. You have to have that feeling where else it is. It's a boring movie. And that can be tough to do in an hour and a half movie. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were mm-hmm. when you were saying that, I was thinking of a show. Uh, you, I'm sure you're familiar with Breaking Bad, but he is yeah. this character that does these horrible things. But over the course of five seasons, it's, it's almost kind of like the, the frog in the boiling water principle where – you know, you you just introduce these little things. You up, you turn up the volume just a little bit each time, and by the end of the fifth season, when he's doing these really despicable things, you still kind of empathize with him because you know his whole story that they've spelled out over five seasons. But that's really difficult to do in an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is more difficult to do in an hour and a half. So what you we use is we use stereotypes because stereotypes are the screenwriter's key. To be able to get an audience to understand what's happening on the screen in just seconds. So we take three old guys. They've just lost their pensions. They've been working for this company, some steel company, for decades. The company's been bought out by by an overseas uh, larger conglomerate, which, of course, is right now, that's a hot-button topic, isn't it? You know, the American company's gone yeah. offshore. And they've dissolved these the pension fund to pay debts. And so we have these three guys. One of them needs a kidney transplant. The other one's getting foreclosure notices on his house. I mean, this is all stereotypical stuff. So we can set up the scenario in minutes because we've seen this before. We've seen it on the news. It happened to my grandfather. I heard some guy at work the other day. You know what I mean? And yeah. all of this comes together in the audience's mind very quickly. So... Is it any good, though? Is this a movie that you would recommend? (laughs) So, first of all, kids are unlikely to go see it. I don't think many adults are going to be motivated to go rob a bank. I certainly hope not. So I'm going to give it a little bit of a pass in that regard, and it really isn't aimed at kids in the first place. Um, There are some funny moments in this movie. Now, Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, and Alan Arkin are playing the three guys in this movie, and it it really is a very similar setup to the 1979 one that was starring George Burns. Um, And these three guys are very accomplished actors, and in fact, they probably give this movie a little more than what they even needed to. There are a couple of scenes in here that are really quite moving and uh, 
And these guys really know how to work the screen. And so that part of it I enjoyed. It's got this kind of funky Rat Pack era score going on in the background. It kind of has a bit of a 60s vibe, early 70s vibe to it. So those parts of it are quite good. But really, everything else is just as predictable as can be. So, you know, this is a film where you're, you're just kind of along for the ride and you're laughing at some of the things that are going on on the screen. Um, it, this is not groundbreaking breaking cinema as far as the story goes and directing and those types of things. If, if in fact, if they didn't have three guys who could walk their walk through this so comfortably, it's really those three actors that really make this movie even worth thinking about. So go see this movie. If you want to see three Oscar winners, chew the scenery yes. casually. <laughs> Absolutely. Jeff, that's, that's it. Perfectly. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. And as I say, you know, parents, your kids aren't likely going to want to see it. Oh, one thing, Jeff, that I do need to mention, a PG-13 movie could not include drug use on screen. You could talk about drugs and that type of thing. But for years, they said, we're not going to show drugs on screen. This one has an extended scene of these three guys smoking marijuana. And I thought, okay, obviously a memo has come through at the MPAA, which I am really disappointed about because we have worked for years trying to get smoking out of movies, and we're, we've made some progress. And now all of a sudden we've got this, this comedic scene of marijuana use. It's not even a scene that's teaching us marijuana is bad for you. This is like, yippee, happy times in a PG-13. I was disappointed. Which, a, a year ago, even, this would have been an R-rated movie for that scene alone. Yeah, and, you know, the marijuana gag, and it seems like it's so played, and, you know, it's it's not even really funny. Yeah, no, it really isn't. It, you know, and then they, of course, it's all the stereotypical, then they get hungry, and they need yeah. to eat afterwards, and all this stuff. So, so, But disappointed to see that in a PG-13 movie. Do you think that's happening because in so many of the states now, marijuana use is legal? Do you think they're doing it to reflect reality? Yeah, in my opinion, yes. I think that is what's taking place. I think it's just like so many things in our society that now are legal and now are accepted that weren't before. And the MPAA's movie rating system is not static. And we've talked about this before, how it moves, it changes. Sometimes it becomes more restrictive and sometimes less restrictive. So, and that's what's happening here. So for example, cigarettes are a good example of where it's become more restrictive, which is why I'm so surprised Why are they letting go of this? You know, marijuana has this, and this is a whole different discussion, but it has sold people on the idea it's safer than cigarettes. That's absolute bunk. But, you know, here we are. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe Yeah, you don't really see it. It's interesting because you used to have commercials where doctors were, you know, promoting cigarettes. And yes. uh, that's not, of course, happening anymore. But uh, doctors do prescribe marijuana. They don't prescribe cigarettes, though. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. OK, yeah. so now for the movie, the the one that I probably well, I definitely will not see. And in fact, when we were at McDonald's the other day and my daughters were playing with uh, some Smurf toys that they got from their Happy Meals, I said, uh, enjoy those while they last because we are not going to see this movie. (laughs) (laughs) You should encourage them to to borrow your iPhone and make their own Smurfs movie with those little characters. I love it when kids— That would be more entertaining. 
Yeah, start getting into stop-motion animation. So the Smurfs, of course, are these little blue critters that have been around for a long time, way back to, I think, the 1950s, originally created in Belgium. And uh, and so this is, I think, their third cinematic uh, 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 movie. Yeah, that's a duplication of words. Trying to think of a better word, I'll quit. <laughs> and so this is them again on the big screen. And this one's a little bit different than the previous Smurf movies because this is not an animated live action mix. This one is complete 3D high tech animation. Um, the biggest thing I want to tell parents about this is if you think that just because a movie's made for kids that it's benign, that's not always the case. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, kids' movies are the most likely movies to be watched ad nauseum over and over and over. Because when these come out on home for home viewing, often parents will buy these films and they'll put them on the safe shelf in the family room and the kids will watch them repeatedly. And the messages that they contain are are also repeated over and over. Now, I'm not saying there's bad messages in the Smurfs, but there are messages. One of the things the Smurfs does that I've often questioned and is the labeling, because all of the Smurfs have names that begin with adjectives. You've got grumpy Smurf, you've got brainy Smurf, hefty Smurf is the strong Smurf, you know, this type of thing. And we live in an era where we're saying we don't want labels anymore. And yet here we have a movie that's all about labels. And I think it's important for parents when when we have a movie like the Smurfs, I'm picking on the Smurfs today, um, that we make sure that we talk to our kids about labels and the fact that, okay, maybe you like playing baseball this summer, but that doesn't mean you're going to be baseball Smurf forever. You can try different things. You can change your hat. You can, you know, and don't be afraid to try things. You're not locked into it forever. And I'm a little concerned sometimes that the Smurfs portray that. Having said that, the Smurfs is still, I mean, this is a fairly fun, benign movie, but it does have some things in it that, in I don't know how much time you have, Jeff, but it's got <laughs> a couple of scenes in it that I think it's important for parents to talk to their kids about. And as much as parents, like you, Jeff, don't want to watch this movie, if your kids <laughs> want to see it, I encourage you to go see it with them so you can have some of those discussions. You could do worse is what you're saying. You absolutely could do worse. <laughs> We're giving Smurfs a B grade. And uh, by the way, the setup of this movie is there's not just boy Smurfs anymore, but they discover a lost village of girl Smurfs, ah. which means that there are going to be many Smurfy sequels coming up. And uh, because now they've got a whole new dynamic to work with. It's about time, if you ask me. And uh, and so that's part of what's taking place in this film. So it's a pretty good film. It's got some positive messages and it's just got some messages that may be positive, may be negative. It depends on how your child interprets them. And I think that's why it's important to talk to them afterwards. Well, you know, Marvel and DC have their own universes. Why can't the Smurfs have their own universe? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So now, is, and, is this one an improvement and, over the, the two uh, prior ones? Yes, I think it is amazingly. I liked this one a little bit better. And you know, that's a good, I didn't even check to see what we gave the last two. This one's getting a B grade from us. With my luck, I gave one of the other ones a B plus. I can't imagine I did, but who knows? But um, I, I found this one a little easier to swallow. Uh, it's got a really cool score. And in fact, on our 
Parent Previews podcast this week on our Tuesday edition, I I talked to Christopher Lennertz. He's the guy that uh, did the score for this movie and a few others like Sausage Party last year, which we aren't going to talk about. <laughs> but he did a great job of Smurfs the Lost Village. And one of the things I, I liked about this movie was I realized, I thought, oh, this has got a pretty funky score. There's some fun things. And it turns out they actually built some instruments like mushroom drums and and whatnot to try and create some different sounds for this movie. And uh, so one of the things that I, I encourage parents to do with kids is ask them to think about the mu- the music that they're hearing in the movie. How is the music making them feel? And how does the music work to um, pull different emotions out of them, out of the audience? And also to try and identify some of the instruments we hear and which instruments are used to make you sad, which ones are used to make you feel excited and those types of things. And so this movie gives you a a good opportunity to do that, especially once it's available for home viewing. Well, Rod, we appreciate you. Thank you for helping us uh, find lessons in sometimes the most (laughs) unlikely of places like the Smurfs movie. Smurfs, The Lost Village and Going in Style are out in theaters now. Go check them out if you feel so inclined. And uh, if you want to look up Parent Previews, uh, you can go to their website, parentpreviews.com. They're also on, at, uh, on Twitter, at Parent Previews. And then Rod also mentioned that they've got a podcast. So go look them up. They're a great organization that are interested in helping you make informed decisions when it comes to the type of media that your children consume. And uh, there may even be some lessons there. We'll take a quick break, and as I teased, we'll be coming back with a recap of a trivia contest that I recently took part in. Did I win? Did I lose? Stay tuned and find out. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. It's Friday, which means we're talking movies. We just finished speaking with Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews about this weekend's big releases. And now it's time for a little game. You know, I don't think it's any secret that I love to talk about pop culture and more specifically about movies. Well, I recently sat down with two very pop culture savvy gentlemen, perhaps even more pop culture savvy than yours truly, Joel Hilton and Kent Dunn, the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, Bacon Sale. They were recording their monumental 100th episode. Congratulations, guys. And I was given the chance to face off against two other aficionados in an epic trivia battle. I was feeling pretty confident going into this game, but things got off to kind of a rocky start. This heavy metal band had a hit with a cover of the 1964 Simon and Garfunkel hit song, The Sound of Silence. Is it A, Godsmack, B, Slipknot, C, Corn, or D, Disturbed? So right now I'm kind of feeling the sound of silence because... <laughs> what did you put? I, I put, All right, I put, you put A, and I don't even remember who you said for A. <laughs> that was A was Godsmack. <laughs> All right, next question. Make it harder. The Rolling Stones made rock and roll history oh, with a free concert in which country in March of 2016? A, Ukraine, B, Iran, C, Cuba, or D, Syria? All right, let's start with you, Jeff. Iran... I ran from that answer because it's wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, next question. Rihanna hit number oh, one. It's Rihanna, Rihanna, actually, please. Rihanna. Riri is what I call it. I call Rai Rai. Rai Rai hit number one on the Billboard 200 in March of 2016 with what album? A, 
unapologetic. B, loud. C, talk that talk. Or D, anti. All right, Jeff? I put B. <laughs> there's a D in B. There kind of is. I mean, just kinda. there's kind of. Uh, Jeff, how many did you get right that round? I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things didn't get much better when we reached the lightning round. Jeff, are you ready? On your mark, get set. Make it set. Bruce Willis played a convict turned time traveler in what 1995 movie? Fifth Element. Twelve Monkeys. The Bachelor has run for how many seasons? Fifteen. Twenty-one. Which actor's real name is Thomas C. McAuther? Pass. It's Tom Cruise. An essential ingredient what? in several notable cocktails. What flavor is the liqueur Kahula? Uh, pineapple. Coffee. The S in Superman's insignia stands for more than just Superman. It also stands for what? No it's idea. hope. Hope is the Oh, that's answer. right. So, yeah, so apparently I'm not very good in lightning rounds. Maybe if I had a little more time to think about those, I could have gotten some of those right. And, uh, you know, at the halfway point, I'm pretty sure I heard crickets when they announced my score. Current standings. Uh, Sam is at 110 points. Woo! Uh, Terry's at 40 points. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeff is at 30 points. <laughs> I thought I heard crickets. You know, things, however, made a turn for the better. When I had my choice of topic, I could choose either questions about Kate Beckinsale, Kevin Bacon, or the Bacon Sale podcast. I had a miraculous comeback. What is Kevin Bacon's wife's name? That would be Kira Sedwick. That is correct. 20 points. There you go. Okay. Bacon cell, bacon, or bacon cell? Give me some bacon. That sounded Everyone creepy. loves the bacon. <laughs> it was just the way you said it, I think. Give Kevin bacon, bacon has starred in at least how many films? A, 30. B, 40. C, 50. D, 4,346. <laughs> I'm going to say C, 50 That's, movies. Why not? That's what I'm saying. That is correct. Woo! No! All right. Uh, back to you, Jeff. Let's go with some Kate. How many Underworld movies have there been in total? Mm. To date. Five. Final answer. Wrong that is correct. Okay. Oh, there we go. And after losing in a sudden death round, I teamed up with the other two contestants to go head-to-head with the Bacon Sale hosts in a neck-in-neck, never-ending round. Which of these films featuring Leonardo DiCaprio was the first to be released? Quick and the Dead. Quick and the Dead is correct. Quick and the Dead. Well done, Jeff. On the Simpsons TV show, what part of Jebediah's Springfield statue does Bart remove in season one? Head. 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 Everybody got that one. (laughs) Points all around. Next question. Which of the following classic video games was the first to be released? Space Invaders. Space Invaders. Yeah! Yeah! Which popular boxing movie does the following quote come from? I just want to say hi to my girlfriend. The Fighter. The Fighter is incorrect. All right, next question. Who won the Grammy for Record of the Year at the 59th Annual Grammy Awards in February of 2017? Adele. Adele is the correct answer. What did you pick? Nice work, Jeff. Playing the role of Laura Petrie on The Dick Van Dyke Show, which American actress and icon died on January 25th, 2017? Mary Tyler Moore. All right, which of the following films does not feature Marlon Brando? Marlon Brando is not in the film The African Queen. Which popular boxing movie does the following quote come from? I just want to say hi to my girlfriend. The Fighter? The Fighter is incorrect. We won! 
won! We won! Yes. Never heard of that. Man, they give us a right. run for our money. Team they really did. They gave you a run. Is it just me? Am I crazy? Or was there the same boxing question twice and I answered it incorrectly both times? <laughs> yeah, that was maybe a little bit of a mistake on my part. Oh, that was so frustrating. That seemed like one of those questions that was so obvious that it couldn't possibly be Rocky. And I remember him saying, yo, Adrian, I'm sick, so give me a break here. Uh, But apparently he does also say, I just want to say hi to my girlfriend. Again, I'm sick. Otherwise, on another day, my Sly Stallone impression would be so much better. Anyway, so it appears I need to brush up on my pop culture maybe a little bit. Either that or I just need to learn to be content with not knowing everything about uh, superheroes and vampires. Because there were some questions about those, too, that I didn't know. Obviously, I didn't get the Superman one, right? That's okay. I think I can live my life knowing uh, or not knowing what shows are on the CW and MTV. In fact, I might even feel better about myself not knowing those things. But not knowing that uh, the line, I just want to say hi to my girlfriend, was in the movie Rocky. I, don't, I, I can't live with myself over that one. Uh, so in that sudden death round, we went to like 14 or 15 questions because it was best the first one to get to 10. And we just kept getting them all right. And I had to go and blow it with that Rocky one. Anyway, just some fun pop culture references for you here on a Friday morning. We're going to take a break and have some more fun and maybe a few more pop culture references with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, or we'll find out if it's somebody else. When we return, it's the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Matt Townsend, who is still in St. George. And uh, yesterday, Spencer and Jason, I said on the radio that if Matt would uh, come back here, I would shave my head. And he's not here, so I still have all my hair. You didn't send out a tweet or anything like that, a text message? I just assumed he was listening to the show. I mean, I understand he's on vacation. Oh, no. When he's gone, he's so checked out. Oh, he checks out? Yeah. When he's gone, he's gone. (laughs) Hey, I want to know, there are two two movies that, uh, two big movies that are out in theaters today, and I want to know if you're going to go see either one of them. The first one, Smurfs, The Lost Village. Okay. Okay. What's the other one? The second one, Going in Style, which is basically a geriatric heist movie. Oh, is that with Michael Caine? Yes, Sir Michael Caine. I would totally see that movie because of him. Yeah, I would see that over the Smurfs because for some odd reason in this new Smurfs, uh, Smurfette is no longer voiced by Katy Perry. It's Demi Demi Lovato. Like, what is it? Yeah, it's Demi Lovato now. What happened to to Katy Perry? Did they just completely redo the cast? Yeah. Well, I think they're trying to distance themselves from the previous two movies. Yeah, I I I, uh, I loved Smurfs. I mean, loved Smurfs when I was little. In fact, I had a Smurfs lunchbox. Really? I remember it was baby blue. 
I was probably first or second grade. I loved the Smurfs. <laughs> Gargamel? But, Did you like Gargamel? I mean, Gargamel was fine. Azrael the cat. But yeah, I mean, uh, but I would probably go see the the uh, the old person heist movie. Yeah, yeah, I would go see that movie going in style just to see if Morgan Freeman does the narration for the movie. He needs to narrate every movie he's he in. He pretty much does. Just give us, just give us the the running dialogue uh, throughout the entire thing. Yeah, I remember the first time I met Michael Caine. <laughs> that would have been better if I wasn't sick. You still haven't that... given up on me, have you, Alfred? <laughs> <laughs> Never. I don't know, your impersonation a minute ago kind of sounded like Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Hello, Clarice. Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> That's creepy, man. <laughs> By the way, I think he is uh, – I think he holds a record for the least screen time for a Best Actor winner. Mm, that would make sense. He wasn't in that very much. Yeah. And when he was, he was uh, has, sucking on Chianti and a, some <laughs> fava, fava beans, beans right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, and then Reed uh, was good to remind me that um, – uh, episode no, not episode one. Rogue One is out on DVD now. I saw that. Yeah, it came out on Tuesday or Tuesday, depending on what you like to say. Tuesday, Tuesday. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, no lightsaber sound effects. You guys, you guys are just itching to play those at all times. Listen, Jerem's gone. Oh, that's there him. There will be no that's lightsaber right. today. <laughs> there will be no more mention of lightsaber today as well, Jeff. Okay, let me ask you this. Yeah, I'll ask both of you this question. I've given you the option. You have to pick one. You can have an actual lightsaber, which we, um, I think most people would agree is probably the coolest thing that's ever been possibly invented or ma- imagined. Okay. So you can either have a real lightsaber or you can fly. What do you choose? Oh, I'm flying. No question. Well, see, I'm flying too, but I, I thought that that made maybe a little more. No, no. I mean, maybe for a Star Wars junkie, yeah, I would fly. I, if I had a superpower, it would be that. Jeff, what are you going with? I would fly too. I think I don't. I'm. You shouldn't trust me with a lightsaber when I can't even <laughs> hold on to my phone. Um, and with flying, I think I would be responsible enough because most of the time I'd probably be too scared to take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, check that. I would time travel and then I would fly. Those oh. would be my two superpowers. Do you ever you wonder go. if you would be too scared to go really high if you could fly? Oh yeah. Is that just me? I'd probably like, go. I would, if I had the power to fly, would I be a chicken and like just like hover above the ground, like not want to go too high? Well, if you could fly, that wouldn't be scary, right? Yeah, but eventually you've got to do it for the first time. <laughs> the things you're thinking about. <laughs> the fact that we're discussing the well, possibility of ever flying is crazy. I'm sorry to everybody that's listening to this. You will never get this three minutes or so back. Oh, that's a I'm sad thought. flying around with a lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, we just have a, just 30 seconds. Tell us what's on your show. This is an, a nostalgic show. And that's because we're talking about the most nostalgic moments within BYU history. It's Masters Week, the greatest golf tournament laden with tradition and so rich in history. So that's inspiring our conversation today. What, what is your Masters tournament or moment as a BYU sports fan? We're also mm-hmm. going to talk NFL draft. Evan Brennan is an NFL agent. He represents Andrew Idy, former BYU guard. 
uh, who's uh, trying to make it in the NFL. So we'll talk to him about Andrew, but also just kind of the process of what Evan goes through as an agent to sign players, and then once he signs them, what's the process in in putting them out there and, and ultimately getting them drafted? There you go. Well... That gives us a lot to chew on. And here's something for you to chew on as you go away. Speaking of masters, what is your opinion of masters of the universe? You don't have to answer, but I'm going to let you two stew that out between each other. Mm. Dolph Lundgren, Billy Barty, mm-hmm. Courtney mm-hmm. Cox, I think, was in the movie, too. Skeletor. Yeah, but we're going with the cartoon. We're, we're not oh, going see. with the movie. I have the power. By the power of Grayskull, I have the power. It was awesome. <laughs> and on that note, we'll let you guys go to All your right. show. Knock them dead. Have a great show. We'll Bye. see you. Wow. <sighs> How about you, Reed? Fly or lightsaber? Well, I'm not sure what's going on here. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to go with flying as well. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I think the lightsaber has like this novelty that people might appreciate for a while, but They'd get bored with it. Bored and I think just dangerous. Would <laughs> just end up as a paperweight. Yeah. Yeah. With flying though, I'd probably only use it as high as like the second floor of a building and probably only then if the line for the elevator was too long. Right. And so. I mean if there were like buildings on campus that kind of had like a, a landing pad on top Ooh. of the roof, you could get around quicker. Yes, that's true. I'd appreciate that. But then if everybody could fly, there would just be crowds. There would be traffic up in the sky. Yeah. What's that line? If everybody's super, no one is. (gasps) From The Incredibles. Bingo. Oh. That, by the way, is probably my favorite Pixar movie. Yeah, don't make another Smurfs movie. Make another one of The Incredibles. They are. Oh. I think like 2018 is when it's coming out. Yes. Anyway, we like to end the show giving – Uh, Read some good news that makes him happy. And here's some news that makes me happy. I made it to the end of the show. Thank you. Thank you. As you know, we have a studio audience. They seem to be a little bigger today. Maybe it has something to do with Matt Townsend not being here. Anyway, he will be back on Monday, I promise. And as you know, we like to end each show with our hero story of the day. A teenage boy in Juneau, Alaska is being credited for saving a five-year-old boy's life after the young boy fell 15 feet off a cliff and into fast-moving waters below. 14-year-old Riley John was spending time at Cope Park with a friend when he saw a five-year-old Mason Hemlock fall off the cliff and hit his head on a rock before falling into the water. That's when Riley sprang into action, jumping into the freezing water below and managing to get a firm enough grip on the boy to lift him out of the water and off to his friend who was standing nearby. Mason's mother, Kristen Hemlock, said her son had been hiking at the park with his babysitter and two friends when his foot slipped and he ended up in the treacherous water below. She said her son would have suffered a much worse fate if Riley hadn't jumped into the freezing waters to save him. Mason doesn't even know how to swim. He said he tried to swim and it didn't work. They saved his life, Hemlock said to Inside Edition. He wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Riley. He put his life on the line for Mason. Well, Riley John, you are our hero of the day. And I believe, uh, you know, uh, Mason Hemlock, five-year-old Mason Hemlock would agree to. And he's going to be all right. So this is another happy and heroic story of the day. We like to share those with you because we do like to give you positive news In a world where it seems like maybe there isn't a lot of positive news, there is. Maybe it just doesn't get us covered as much. 
And there are opportunities for you as well, the listener, to seek out those heroic opportunities, to be a hero to those around you, to those you love, to even to complete strangers. That's it for the show. When we come back on Monday, you'll be blessed to have Matt Townsend back on The Matt Townsend Show. See you then.